You're listening to The Running Public. From marathoners to mud runners, we all have the same goal. Get to the finish line faster. That's right. This podcast is for you guys, the running public. I just hit the record button, so we got to keep it like PG-13 now, Bracken. I stay PG-13. Do you guys have guidelines for that? Do you like, are you drinking A-Shock? I was going to say that's amazing. Red Thunder. Oh my goodness, I don't even know what that is. I don't think I've ever seen you consume an on-brand product ever, Bracken. I live on the fringe, Kirk. What is Red Thunder? Join me on the fringe. It's Aldi's Red Bull. Ah, that's good brand. I mean, it makes sense to draw the line from Red Bull to Red Thunder. I, I could see how it would be easy for a consumer to identify that as an energy drink. It is pretty darn close to one-to-one in terms of taste as well. Well, if you had to describe like the taste of Red Bull to somebody who's never had it, like, what would you say it is? I'd say it's a lot like a Jaeger bomb without the Jaeger. So <laughs> that's, <Red> like, that's <laughs> like solid nostalgia. Is what I think is. a Jaeger bomb is Red Bull with Jaeger in it. So well, there you, you go. I couldn't be more <laughs> accurate. I would describe Red Bull as Red Bull. <laughs> Bracken, do you, do you consume anything on brand? Like anything you're like, it has to be this brand other than like your running gear, like it, consumables? No, 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 no. Other than your running gear. Like things you put in your mouth. Are you all generic? Uh, yeah. I, I mean, I have a lot of stuff on brand, but I like to, I like to finagle my way through life. I like to to source out great deals or workarounds and exploit those, even if it costs more time, energy, and money, in, in failures in the in the short term. But you're not a slave to capitalism. You know, the marketing doesn't have its stranglehold on you like it does like the rest of us. I'm a free capitalist. All right. Mm. Yeah, but you've had a lot of bathroom issues because of your experiments and that, <laughs> that my friend, you need to be careful with. You know how Steve Hammond went through that, the gut bombs during his Hammond challenge, and then eventually was just bulletproof? That's all I'm doing. I want to get to a point where bathrooms have no sway over me. <laughs> it's like you're in like your mid-50s, like, I did it. Yeah. Finally got there. Yeah. I don't even have to go to the bathroom anymore. I'm just highly optimized. I use everything I ingest. <laughs> Bracken, we went down the wrong avenue for today's podcast topic. We'll cut this out and record. We're going. Ah, we'll keep some of it in. But today, folks, you've already heard him talk. We got Mr. Rich Ryan with us again by popular demand. Hello. Thank you for having me back, guys. Thank you for the peoples out there demanding me to You're come the people's back. champ. I guess that's the fact now. Got to carry that out. I think, um, I think you know, through your own sort of history, you did a really nice job of outlining your relationship with food and nutrition and its relation to endurance athletics and trial by error and learning yourself and with other athletes. And so we have you on the podcast today, Rich, to actually dive in. We're taking the time to talk nutrition for endurance athletes. I thought the day would never come. It's here. I'm happy to be here with you guys. It's an important topic. And especially this time of year where the training's kind of wind, like, wrapping up the races are kind of ending and like there's no real sight in it so you can kind of take a look at all things outside of just the training and i feel like nutrition is a piece that everyone like knows there is work to do but it's hard to figure out like what to do first and where to go so yeah i'm, I'm excited to dive in you know when we had you on the first time we did so with the intent that this is our feeler episode we wanted to have you on anyways but we can really gauge if people want to hear more about this 
And I just was hoping we would hear crickets. <laughs> I really was. Because I just didn't want to open up this can of worms because it was the first non-provable. It's the first non-finite topic that we would touch upon. You can prove threshold. You know, you can prove aerobic capacity. It is so individualized, the nutrition, that I just didn't want to open up that our our DMs to the wave of people fighting us on the topic. Right. But you acquitted yourself very well. Great. And throughout you talking during that episode, I started realizing, all right, we need this and we need someone who wants to provide it. People know I'm going to drag my feet on it. So I'm glad you're doing it. And I had a conversation with a couple of people about this topic and they brought to light that we spent our time laying the, the groundwork for what the running public podcast was going to be about. We did a terminology episode. We did intro to tempo. We, you know, we talked about threshold aerobic threshold, anaerobic threshold. We talked about VO2 max. We talked cadence. We talked strides. We just broke down every little building block of all the things we were going to talk about long-term. And I think that without having an expert on, we never would have done that nutritionally as well. And I think that there's so much misinformation and blanket terms that get thrown around like tempo, but the nutrition equivalent of that. And I think we need you to do the same thing for nutrition, provide clarity. Because it can really be that way, right? Like when it comes to jargon and what people are worried about and their, their, the information that they're fed and what I've fed uh, and what I've found in terms of the athlete and the information that is provided to the general public, it's not necessarily the same and it, and it needs to be given to the athletes in a way that they can understand like how they are have different needs than most of the general public. So yeah, I'm glad that you guys decided to just kind of sit down and chat about it because that is the thing, right? Like figuring out or at least having some sort of voice or some sort of information so you can make up your mind on one decision and what it sounds like. Whereas it can be confusing seeing how other people relate to nutrition and, and people preaching one, one thing or one specific thing. Well, you can't, you can't make an informed decision if you're not informed, right? About your nutrition. So step one, inform, right? And you, you outlined something really interesting and I think more common than people realize the last time we spoke with you. And you'd mentioned about cutting something out of your diet because you noticed it triggered asthma, for example. Mm -hmm. What was that? What was that food? So me in particular, it was cliff bars and okay. like doing more research. Like I've done some different tests. Like there's this test called the uh, EGG test, which is can kind of give you some idea of what your food allergies would be and it's it's almost pseudoscience it's like one of those things bracken like it's not necessarily it's not that tangible and it's like a send away it's a spit test you just pay like 150 bucks they send you back this list i've had the test about five times right and like did you find it helpful uh yeah i did nice i did and like i said but like it, it can't it comes back with this huge list of things so at least you can kind of start to pick things out and figure out what it is that could potentially be leading uh, to something like for me, it's like inflammation in my lungs. Like it just punches up asthma. Um, and I found it to be- So this is something you send in your spit and they send back a list of things that our biomarkers indicate you could be allergic to or have no, reactions not, not to? Not allergic, it would be like an intolerance and it would be it would be like an inflammatory marker response okay. in a sense to, to consuming that food, which could then negatively impact your health, your gut. Uh, any even inflammatory process like Rich talked about with his asthma or his bronchioles, um, it could go multiple facets. It's not an allergy test. It's, that's a misconception. Just like okay. celiac disease isn't an allergy to gluten, it's an intolerance. Right. It's one along those lines. And it won't tell you how it's going to manifest. It'll just be like egg yolks and be like, 
that's weird. And then like, it'll have a whole bunch of different things on there that you can then kind of create awareness around. Yeah, it could be, it could be nothing like you could notice nothing or it could be the, the cause of your psoriasis. Yeah. It could be the cause of your asthma. Could be the cause of headaches, or it could be literally underlying, and you have no idea if it's really doing anything. And there's some subjectivity to the test. If that so makes then, sense. So then you would use it at like a checklist and remove pieces one by one for a week and see how it works. And you work your way through the list and see what you notice and don't. Yeah, and then you could reintroduce those foods as well. Yeah, like removing something three or four days and then not changing anything after those three or four days, and then adding that one specific thing back yeah. in. It would be laborious and it'd be long, a long term project. But like you have time when it comes to food. I mean. You can right. do it, but it's just kind of a pain. All right. So then have you have you ever compared your list to anyone else's that they get back? Do they just send out a general <laughs> allergen type list or do they do they actually personalize it to you? Like a, like a Myers-Briggs test where it's just like, oh, yeah. you're a 15 or whatever. Um, I don't know. I actually haven't seen. I haven't seen. Okay. Well, what they'll do. So, I mean, nutrition is up my alley as well. So I think we're going to go back and forth on this a little bit, Rich, but like, uh, they'll, they'll, they'll put like the 250 common foods on there. And then they're going to give you a score, like a green, yellow, or a red, mm -hmm. and it's going to give you an inflammatory marker. And that's going to be basically it. And you're going to have a list of foods in the red. And it says, these are the foods you should avoid for six months to, to eliminate your intolerance to them. And then you go back, you retest six months later, and you see if any of those have improved for example, and they always change, right? The more you eat something, the more you develop typically an intolerance to it. So common foods you eat are also very commonly intolerant to. Hmm. And it has something to do with like this enzyme that presents itself within your spit. It's almost kind of how like a vaccine, this is topical, like how a vaccine will create, uh, I'm actually not gonna be able to explain that very well at all. <laughs> but like if you eat food, it will create this enzyme that will be present in your, present in your spit. And the enzyme is meant to kind of fight this intolerance. Again, it's kind of pseudoscience and I'm not explaining it well, but that's kind of how it works. So it's really not extremely accurate. But it gives you a jumping off point to go explore yourself. Totally. But if you get it Start and you're just- Start taking control of your own personalization of your food. Exactly. Okay. Let's say though, let's say a person, this is not the avenue I wanted to start with. I wanted to use this as a segue into what we were going to talk about. But let's say you're a person who's knees ache all the time, or you're a person who constantly has stomach trouble, or you're somebody who struggles with headaches, something like this would be worth diving into. And you can just send out for these tests if you'd like, or you can get it done through like a, a doctor or a nutritionist. And sometimes it's super helpful for people. For example, it, obviously an elimination diet helped Rich with his asthma, but um, if you don't struggle with common stuff, if you don't notice like stomach aches after you eat or things, there's something glaring that you can't figure out. Maybe it's not for you, but it's super interesting, I will say. But there is some subjectivity, if I'm not mistaken, right, Rich? Yeah, I would definitely say that. And it's things that it could be like joint inflammation, like it could also be due to lifestyle habits being sedentary or working too hard. So it's like hard to figure out what it is. So if you're going to decide to do that, just do that. Don't get this food test at the same time as going to PT or something like that. If it is along those lines. I will say the credibility and then we can move on to this test is so I eat venison a lot. Obviously I talk about this plenty. I'm a deer hunter and I went in and got tested and venison was, this is a year and a half ago was my highest inflammatory marker. Hmm. And it's impossible for that marker to be up unless you're consuming something somewhat regularly because repeated exposure creates intolerance or allergies, right? So there's some truth to that test because it's not like it's not like Bracken's ever going to test high on venison because he doesn't eat it often. Whereas I did, I cut it out for six months and I started eating again, felt way better. I noticed I was having issues with it for a while. So for example, it like, it's kind of there. Okay. And what's it called? Like an IgG test. IgG, yeah. And that's where I think there are discrepancies with that, Kirk, is like you're getting this response because you're eating that thing. But like, is that a negative response? Correct. No. It's hard to say. Right. 
Interesting. Um, but I brought this up. Okay. And then we'll segue is there's a lot of avenues you could go with this as far as performance goes from diving into food specifics and inflammatory response to all the fad potential diets. I mean, we have fat adapted. We have obviously the traditional balance eating nutritional needs for an endurance athlete are vastly, vastly, vastly different than like a sedentary human. And so Bracken, I know we talked about this a little bit before recording, but we kind of wanted to give the people like kind of an overview maybe of like their options and theories on the whole thing and just kind of keep it like flowing that way. Totally. Um, so where would you start rich with like, if we're just going to like, let you take the floor on like your for your philosophy to start with, as far as like nutrition and endurance athletes, where would you begin? So it really kind of comes back. It's not the exact same thing in terms of trying to find your intolerance, but more in terms of creating awareness. So I think that's really the first place and kind of going through what you're eating and, and really the quantity and seeing how that's going to match the output that you're, you're putting forward. Um, just thinking that all things are equal and just kind of starting and just assuming there are no problems in terms of intolerance or allergies or whatever, or whatever it would be. And just figuring out how much you're eating and what you're eating and, and what that looks like when it's presented right in front of you. So I think tracking is a really, really good place to start and not even necessarily tracking for calories, but just kind of creating awareness about what your day-to-day -day looks like for eating, because there might be huge gaps that you might not even realize, or you might be eating a lot of something that you thought you might not have. Like for my example before, it's like, oh, I was eating cliff bars or protein bars like two or three times a day, you know, just like being on the run, that trainer lifestyle, you know, it's like just there and it's easy. And you think it's like, oh, well, I eat necessarily, I eat quote unquote healthy or, or clean. And you look at it, it's like, oh, well, there's actually a lot of this processed food in here. It's like, is this something that needs to stay in my diet? Or is it hurting me? Or can I, can I move it around it? Or is it kind of throwing things off in terms of my caloric intake? And how is that going to help or hurt my, my performance? So I think creating awareness through just like tracking and, and seeing what you're actually doing is a really good first step. Well, I'm going to come through everything that we talk about as the skeptic. That's going to be my role here. <laughs> <laughs> but this is one in the Rich Ryan column because Kirk, Rich, you know, all three of us are endurance coaches as well. And what is the first thing we ask an athlete to do when they say, all right, will you write me a training plan? We ask what they've been doing recently. You know, I make them write out their last six weeks of training. Hmm. And I'm sure you guys have your own version of that is find out what volume have you been at? What intensity have you been at? What frequency have you been at? So we can see what's been causing your your results right now and what we do next. And that's darn it, Rich. That's the first thing you did is you said, all right, we need to find out what you are putting into your body first before we start doing anything. I was kind of hoping you would say like, oh yeah, the first thing you need to do is go paleo. <laughs> I, wanted to, I wanted to fight you on this, but you're being unfortunately reasonable about this. So, And that's like the thing. It's like, if someone came to you, it's like, Hey, I want to get faster for a 5k. It's like, okay, well then we need to do 800s at sub 5k pace. It's like, well, how do you know this person's not overtraining or something? Like it doesn't right. without any type of awareness around it. So that's definitely the first part and seeing if that, if, if where to go from that first piece. Do you feel like every single person who is an athlete needs to go back to square one, no matter how good or bad they feel. Like to this point that you're talking, like start by logging and start correlating your food with how you feel in performance. Do you feel like everybody should go back to that point? I think it's really helpful. I like to encourage it. The thing that is tricky with nutrition and and a lot of of the skepticism that pops up in the information that puts out there is that there's this ridiculous emotional tie, not ridiculous, like a really strong emotional tie to food. So I, I don't think it's necessary for people that might have 
some negative relationships with food to explore from from this route first. And if that is something that needs to be cleared up, because I've gone down that route, uh, unfortunately, with some people and, and it opened up this window that I was not prepared to handle and it wasn't the, the route that I was uh, anticipating on going. So with that caveat, besides that, yes, I think it's a really good place. Like if this is where you want, if, if there is something else you want to put into your training, this is a really easy way to see what will work or where you can add or if everything is good. So just kind of, again, figuring out what you need to do and, and revisiting it. Bracken, you, you sit there with your mouth kind of open and that's when I think you're going to talk and then <laughs> oh. you, you didn't. <laughs> you threw me off there. I, I do go slack jawed when I'm about to. <laughs> you were sitting there with your mouth hanging open. I thought for sure you were going to let it rip, man. I, I'm sure I'm throwing you guys off. I'm constantly standing up and down during this episode. When you're I down, to, like, I can't, I see only nose. Then there's some chance. Okay. Yeah. I'll adjust you a little bit here. I had a little bit of like lower back spasm pop up yesterday in the morning as I was getting ready for a big workout. Actually, my lower back just started locking up. And so I went to the Cairo. I was, ba I worked from bed all yesterday. I was just so inflamed that everything hurt it. So I just stayed in bed. And this morning I'm feeling pretty good, but sitting is one of the things that feels uncomfortable right now. So I'm just constantly standing up and moving. And so during that, I was just kind of feeling it. And I guess my jaw started to go slack on you. <laughs> how many how many Cliff Bars did you eat yesterday? Is that your problem? Mm, none. In fact, it was right away in the morning. I woke up feeling good. I went downstairs, had my pre-workout, and was just sitting there talking to my buddy Ross, who came over to do his workout prior to mine. And it just started tightening. I wasn't even doing anything. Well, well back to this. So, so <laughs> enough about you, Bracken. Stop bringing it back to me. I'm just going to stand over here slack down. Let me do my thing. Flex my glutes. It really did throw me off. All right. Um, so when it comes to nutrition and the deal, do you think, let's say you track your food, okay? First thing, start a log. For people who have maybe a self-proclaimed healthy relationship with food, mm -hmm. I think is what you were trying to get at. Yeah. What do you What do you do with it? Like, how do you even, okay, I got my log. Great. And I'm obviously training. So I have that data, what, what what do you do with it? So that's when you start matching it against the work that you are doing and make, and seeing if it like is equal toward your goals, right? Like if you have, say you want to gain muscle, you want to gain muscle while running, you, you're, you came into OCR as a skinny person, you want to gain muscle, you need to put yourself in a surplus, right? And so if you take a look at the work that you're doing, say you're still running 60 miles a week and hitting the gym two or three times a week and you're eating and, and like, you know, you're moderately active. You walk around sometimes a day. You're not sitting around at your desk the entire day and you're eating 2,500 calories and you think that that's adequate. Like it's, it's under, it's too little to put on muscle. Right. And then that's where you got to kind of figure out, okay, how to manipulate what you've tracked and how to either add more or take something away. Um, and so at this point, I'm still not necessarily looking at, Hey, eat, eat chicken instead of ground beef. Right. I'm not even like guiding people toward what to eat then it's more about the the quantity of what they're going to eat and how it's going to push them into your goals and and Kirk you have some background in like macros right like you you will you'll do that kind of thing so that's where I'll then kind of break things down it's like okay now that we know that you want to put on muscle you're eating 2500 calories um and 80 grams of those calories it is protein it's like okay let's see if we can up this and like usually by portion size. So it's like, if you're eating chicken, eat a little bit more of it and see if we can bump that up and then see what happens with the performance as it moves out or see what's happening with their body composition as it elongates out. 
I like that. Now, you just started touching upon one of the first kind of like trigger words mm. of the nutrition industry, which are macros and micros. Now, one of the things that I did when I lived out in Colorado is I lived with two people who were super into CrossFit and they would not stop talking about their macros and their micros. And it was like the first thing that turned me off. I just shut out the rest of the conversation as soon as they started to say like, bro, my macros. And I was like, boom, done. However, it's worth talking about, but I think first it's worth explaining. So there are just like a lot of people that don't know what a stride is or don't know what a true interval workout would look like. A lot of people don't truly know the definition of your macro and micronutrients. So let's start there. Right. So this is something that is kind of confusing when it starts because it's not cut and dry the way that paleo or keto would be where it's like, eat all this or don't eat all this for macros, like being on quote unquote macro diet, I guess you would call it, I don't necessarily consider it a diet, but a macronutrient is just like your energy source that you get from food. So it's protein, fats, and carbohydrates. Um, and, and when we're looking at the macros, it's just a matter of how much all those add up in your day. So if you're eating 140 grams of protein, 300 grams of carbohydrates and 70 grams of fat, that's your macro. Those are essentially your macro, uh, totals for that day. It's just a way to be a little bit more specific than just calories. Um, and it's a better way to predict your performance and your body composition. When you go on just calories, people often will just add in a bunch of low fat foods because they're low in calories, or they'll overeat on things like just vegetables because there's low caloric, um, consequence to those, but then they'll miss out on a lot of the, the, the adaptation that you can get from nutrition, the recovery piece, the energy piece that you have, and again, just rebuilding the muscle. So it's just a way to kind of be a little bit more dialed in with the quantity of food that you're taking in. And it can be confusing because there's like this macro ratio that people always want to kind of like search for. It's like, okay, well, what should my ratio of macros be? And it doesn't necessarily have to be any specific ratio. There isn't like a magic number for that. And a lot of calculators that people are, that are available for people online, they have this kind of macro breakdown. And, you know, if you do a keto macros, it's like 15% protein, like 75% fat. And so people want there just to be like a percentage, but it's really based off of the total amount of food that you're eating. And the percentage is just going to be broken out. However, your, your goals are. So it's really adaptable and you can move it around in a lot of different ways. So it can be kind of hard to grasp because you do have to do a little bit more digging as to like what the goals are. And then you can kind of manipulate it each way. Um, so that's kind of this like basics. It's just really the food that you're eating and just the macro targets are protein, carbohydrates, and fats. Does that, that's good. So energy sources, protein, carbs, fats, those are the three macros. And that's what people are referring to when they talk about their macros. hundred percent alcohol is also considered a macro just because it is an energy seven, source. Seven calories per gram. Shitload, shitload of calories. Of, yeah. Very dense form of uh, energy. Yep. But not on a nutrition label. So when you get, when you're drinking your white claw and it's like two grams of carbs and it's like hundred calories, it's like all from alcohol. Well, and the rare and alcohol is treated really like a, almost more like a carbohydrate in the system. It's like a cheat when it's like, oh, it's two grams of carbs. Yeah, but it's converted into blood. It's converted to glucose like that. So whatever. Yeah, right. Um, so that, yeah, that's what people refer to. It's just, and what their macros are, it's what they're specifically prescribed. So how I was talking about that athlete earlier who wanted to put on some muscle like if you have a goal that way, you probably want to have a lot more protein, a lot more carbohydrates and kind of keeping your fat at some sort of baseline to make sure that you're getting their, your day-to-day uh, -day bodily functions are in order. Um, but then you can just manipulate it. It's like, okay, well today you did an extra long run and you're at the gym. So we're going to do 500 grams of carbohydrates based off the activity that you just did. And those are your, and 175 grams of protein. And those are your macro targets for those specific macros. So, and then how you get to those macros 
doesn't necessarily matter. And this is also, and within the macros world, it kind of splintered into like this, if it fits your macros uh, branding or um, kind of like eating clean, it would be another one. And some people just eat. However, like if you want to get all your carbohydrates and, and fats and pop tarts and it hits your macros, all things equal, like people can get results that way. And that's why macros is a nice option for people who are just going into this world because you don't have to give up any of the food that you like. You just have to be aware and eat a specific amount. And as long as it kind of meets what your total caloric intake and what your total macro targets are for that day. So it's not like stop eating gummy bears or, or something like that. It's just eat whatever you want as long as it fits in here. So that was, that's kind of the second step even before it gets to the food quality part. Bracken, have you, have you explored this at all? Or is this, was it literally just, you're talking about some shit that I don't want to hear? No, I've explored all of this, but I'm speaking on my role on this one. And you two are the much more learned than I and much more passionate. Mm. So I get to play the the noob and the skeptic role on this one. Nice. So what, what were the CrossFitters like on that? What, like, how did they approach it? Were they just... Well, at that time, uh, yeah. What year was this? Just for context of the, this would have been twenty fourteen through sixteen. So, fats were just, you couldn't get enough fats, and you couldn't get enough protein, and they were boiling their own lard down, and they were um, eating bacon with every meal, and so they were still doing the paleo high fat thing. Essentially, yeah, and but but it was you know I had to get they were I'd be between protein and. In car, I mean, protein and fat, I think they were trying to take in like 85% of their macros in those two. And, oh, wow. you know, they, they were extreme in that regard. But again, it was the the idea that they couldn't talk about their food. They had to talk about their macros mm -hmm. instead. Like, hey, if it's fat and it came from an animal, it fits my macro rather than how do I feel afterwards? And why am I on the toilet for an hour each morning? And they just, they didn't, they were in the camp of, I don't care what I'm eating as long as I hit my macro that my CrossFit app on my phone said I need to hit, then I'm good and I'm healthy. Were they trying to lose body fat? Uh, because that diet is not, in my opinion, conducive to performance. However, I'm just, I, who knows what their school of thought was, if those were really their macros. Well, that was something that happened in CrossFit when it first started is it was kind of this way. Everything for CrossFit was do as little amount of work as possible to get the most results. And that's why this high intensity thing kind of came out. And then the, mm -hmm. like, I think it was Glassman. I think it came from the top where they're like, the best way to eat is just to eat animal products and don't avoid packaged foods. So people were going really low carb for a long time and you'll lose weight, but you won't perform that well, right? You won't gain muscle necessarily, but that was just kind of what was preached from the top and every CrossFit box that you went into, it was like, paleo and then that boiled down even further into like the more the keto the high fat um, mm -hmm. and that was just because of a lack of awareness like what their goals were and how that was going to relate like you're not going to get that much you're not going to get yoked eating that much fat you're not going to get that much better at crossfit eating that much fat and protein yeah usually i mean if you're gonna if you're looking at gaining muscle like protein needs to be coupled with carbohydrate in order to really be utilized the way our systems want to. So you have to have a surplus of both. You can't just have a surplus of one. Um, I want to leave the macro train real quick and just talk about micros. Do you want to give people a, a quick explanation of micronutrients? So micronutrients are just like anything that you would get from your, your food sources. It would just be things you would get from like your plants, your whole foods. It would just like all the little things that don't actually have calories in them would be your micronutrients that would, would be on the food label is a real easy way to, to kind of explain it. So like, yeah, your macros are your calorie sources, your micros would be everything else. Vitamins, minerals, vitamins, minerals. Yeah. Vitamin A, zinc, that, that type of stuff. Iron. Those would be like your micronutrients. 
the stuff that are all like, we know they have health benefits. They don't provide cellular energy, but they provide help to the cellular structure and probably long-term performance and health of your body. And yeah. Tell that to five hour energy shots. <laughs> yeah. B vitamins. Yeah. B vitamins, total yeah, energy yeah. source. <laughs> and like, yeah, this is where people with their macros, when they get really too dogmatic on, on some, and they just want to hit their total targets and they just eat like white rice and chicken every meal. That's where you can kind of run into some issues, but it's harder to quantify with micros, like where you're going to have, uh, deficits and really you can kind of cover your bases just by eating different colored foods and just eating a lot of vegetables, eating a lot of fruits. What are your, what's your guys relationship with micros? Do you, do you think about the micronutrients that you're eating? I just make sure I eat in color. So I, I make sure I eat colors twice a day. At least sometimes I run out the door in the morning and have to grab a, I usually have a paleo type bar, um, with some whole food nutrition, it's simple, low ingredient list, you know, things like that. But colors, man, it's just about colors. So lunch and dinner, I'm always getting colors. And I don't struggle whatsoever with macros. And I don't feel a ton different at different ratios, as long as they're pretty balanced. Mm. I'm a carb based athlete, I found, but I also react well to fat and protein. And so if I'm relatively balanced, I'm doing well. I do eat a lot of carbs. Um, what I have found is that my point of emphasis has to be on more of the micro because I will naturally tend to eat the same foods over and over and leave leave uh, leafy vegetables and fruits out of it. They're the kind of things that I rarely don't enjoy when I cook them and eat them, but I don't reach for them first. I'm a salt-based person. I like to feel sated and I like to have the pleasure of salt. That's what my system responds to from a taste factor. So I have to Lisa and I have to go out of our way to ensure that we saute up some vegetables to throw in with our rice and protein or to do that because that's where I come up short historically. And that you're not alone on that. People just don't like vegetables, you know? And uh, so what are some of the things, mechanisms that you put in place to make sure that you are eating? Is it just be like, oh, we got to put some spinach in this? Or are you kind of supplementing with a green juice or like a multivitamin or any sort just to kind of cover those bases? I don't supplement really at all. Um, and we, we, we could stand to do more vegetables, but I throw fruit. I, I eat yogurt pretty much every day, yogurt, granola, and I chop up a bunch of fruit and put it in there. I'll have apples and grapes and dates mm. and really whatever I can, bananas and throw in there. And then we do smoothies every day. And then anytime we make rice, sometimes noodles or, or whatever we're making, um, we try to chop up a bunch of vegetables and throw that along with it. So pizzas, we eat pizza at least once a week and we try to load that with it. So it's kind of like a, an intentional thing. We have to take a dish we already enjoy and add something to it. Yeah. And I feel like for the most part, for the, a lot of the athletes who I speak with and who are training for running or OCR, they, they generally have a good idea of what healthy, quote unquote, healthy eating is. And they're attuned with just eating clean and getting vegetables in. So I rarely find this to be the issue unless it is someone like you, Bracken, who's just like adverse to, to vegetables and just trying to figure out like what ways, like how you've done to make sure you're getting in just different colors. Mm -hmm. And we really like, like sauteing dish vegetables. And so like, if that's our route, then we just try to do those more often. You know, we find out something that after we eat a meal, like we really like that, then we'll just repeat that. Just keep it with just, the same thing. Yeah. Just, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Because we're creatures of habits, both she and I are. And so we, we have the three or four dishes that include those that we like, and we try to put them on repeat. So Kirk, I mean, you just had a thing with iron, right? And I'm not sure how much you've spoken about that. Like, how have you gone mm -hmm. about, and that is something that shows up often in endurance athletes. 
Mm-hmm. How have you been conscious of that now? Like trying to get more in, well, or have it had to change anything? Luckily for me, I got injured, so my output went down. <laughs> <laughs> lucky, lucky you. My ferritin and iron count had a chance to restore a little bit on its own. I feel a lot better because of that alone. Um, I haven't been retested. I've just uh, I cycle through iron uh, supplementation. It's tough on the gut if you take it as much as you need to when you're deficient. So I, I cycle through it because it, it can really just jam me up. Um, and uh, making a conscious effort to eat more dark greens and red meats. But because of my training, has volume and intensity has gone so far down the last five months. It's restored itself. I'm. I can feel it. You know. So, but yeah, you have to be conscious of it for sure. Are you worried about building back up? Like for someone who is coming out of iron deficiency, I know it's it's not. It can kind of be a long, long road, mm-hmm. right? Especially if you do want to continue to train. Like when it start ramping up, like what are you going to do? Continue to supplement. Yeah, is what I'm going to have to do. It's just my body just runs on the low side. Most of us do really as endurance athletes. We run on the low side of normal with our ferritin and iron levels. Um, I don't know how many of you guys have gotten it checked in any time in recent life, but you. Just because of our output, you wouldn't be surprised if most of us run on the low side. I got I, I was part of that inside tracker testing that Spartan had us hooked up with for a few years. In mm-hmm. my iron levels, I started it when I first moved out to Colorado. In fact, right after the Breckenridge Sprint in, what would that have been, 2014? 14, I think? We weren't around then, Breck, and I don't know. 2015? Oh, okay, it was the first, <laughs> first year of MDC uh, coverage. Second year, maybe. Anyways, I had been out there for a couple months and I got tested right after that. And that was probably the lowest I was throughout that time, which is kind of natural when you first move up to altitude, but never, never crazy there. I just always had huge inflammatory markers. Hmm. But that's a byproduct. Oxidization is a byproduct of training. Like we're all going to have huge inflammatory markers if we're outside the range of the rest of the people though. Hmm. Oh, not from like a normal human. Like, yeah. You're just running around inflamed, huh? That's what I was, yeah. And that was that 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 probably when I started addressing my inflammatory markers was when I first started taking any active role in my diet. But you know, inflammatory markers can be caused by an autoimmune disease. It could be caused by having a digestive disorder. It could be caused by just running too much and having too much damage in your muscles. Like it, it could be all over. Or the like place. what you eat that day. Like it can get thrown off. What you eat that it day. can get thrown off just that that simple. If you were on the Uncrustable train, then maybe it was just from Uncrustables, Bracken. I mean, at the time I was eating probably 60 to 70% of my calories were coming from meat. Mm. Oh, wow. I was, I was way off the rails. I was just eating whatever I felt like and, and, uh, and too, much, too much meat and too much sugar compared to everything else. And I was just always in, inflamed. But that, that's come down over the years as I, as I started taking an active I, uh, role in it. I want to bring this conversation back to the people here in, in the way that Okay, so all fine. You're telling people to log their food so they have an, a, an understanding of the relationship with food and its relation to their running or performance. How do you know what to shoot for? Like, where do you decide, like, hey, I need this much or I don't need this much or I'm having too much or too little? I find that most athletes are underfueled. Mm-hmm. I'm sure you find the same thing. Absolutely. Um, and, and something I want to touch on with that real quick is just because you're not losing weight does not mean you're not underfueled. A lot of athletes' bodies will get really good at maintaining weight on a under caloried diet. So they think they're eating enough because their weight is stable, but they're, I mean, I find that trap all the time, but they are wrong. Your body just is good at keeping homeostasis and your cellular energy on a day-to-day basis sucks because you're not saturating your cells. So just because you're not losing weight doesn't mean you're not under fueled. And I just think that's a really important point for people to hear. And I, I have to imagine you agree with me on Especially that. Especially in this area where people are working really, really hard. And like a lot of times 
people are trying to lose weight. So they're going to just going to go deeper and deeper into that hole thinking that, okay, if I need to be in a, a caloric deficit to lose weight and I'm not losing weight, like I need to go lower. So yeah, most often we go up like, and that's a, kind of a leap of faith for a lot of people, like trying to get them from eating a little bit to trying to eat a little bit more and just trying to explain to them how much they are actually burning. And I mean, there's definitely some formulas out there that will give a general uh, outline for how much you would need to refuel from your run or from your uh, weight training session. And then just matching that up, you can go, you can do it. Sometimes we'll go day to day, like how I mentioned, like, okay, today you're running long. So here's your, here's your, what you, what you need. Or if it's, you're running shorter, we'll just drop it back a little bit. So it really is going to matter of like what they're like really giving them a little bit more. And I'm sure Kirk, have you seen people actually lose weight once they start eating more? Oh yeah. I have seen that plenty. Um, I have also seen the opposite, but um, I, I guess what I'm wondering here is one. So you actually, you actually change your caloric intake and macros based on your workload for the day. You always do that. I do. You don't just eat the same every day, roughly. So you will, you will change it. And, and how do you, like, how do you get your baseline? How do you, so with something called your basal metabolic rate, which is your body's need for calories. If you laid in bed all day and simply blinked. Okay. It's like what you need to just keep your body functioning without losing weight. That's your basal metabolic rate. So everything has to be based off of that. Do you guess for where do you get your starting point is what I'm asking. Yeah. So for the, for the BMR, I mean, it's, it's never going to be that varied, right? Like, and there is there, like the calculators and the calculations that you can have, you'll be pretty close because you're not burning that much when you're not moving. Everything else has a lot to do with lifestyle factors and how much you are moving in between outside of the work that you're doing during workouts, it's pretty easy to predict like how much it's going to burn, how much you're going to burn during your actual workouts. Like the, the formula that I go off of, of the tool that I use, I, I built this whole tool out to help with this, to help with the predictions of how much the athletes who I'm coaching, how much they're going to be burning and, and then being able to match their day to day. It's every, um, gram of body weight in kilos times the amount of kilometers they've run. So I know it's kind of like, not us friendly but to get your uh body weight in kilograms it's dividing it by 2.2 and to get your miles converted into kilometers it's 1.6 and i remember that just because of 1600 and uh on the track so like if you can take those numbers and that's what you run however that's going to equal out is going to be how many calories you're going to burn so say for example you're 70 70 70 kilos and then you run 10 kilometers that would be 700 calories so that'd be a good way of kind of showing how much you burned that specific day for that run. And then based on what your goals are, if you are just fueling for performance, you're going to want to replace those primarily in carbohydrates for the most part, if you're doing endurance sports. So to get the carbohydrate number, you take the 700 and divide it by four. Um, what does that look like? Who's good at mental math? I don't do math during quarantine. That's out. Okay. So 700 divided by four. So that'd be 175 grams of carbohydrates that you would need to replace what you've lost from that specific run. And then that would be on top of what you were for your total day. So if your total daily, so your BMR is probably somewhere between for guys like us, we're probably between what you think 1700 and 1850. I was going to say 1800. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you're all yoked though. It's all muscle up there. And through. Um, so say that, I saw you. I saw you with your toes to bar and your shredded abs. Don't don't sell yourself. Camera angles. Thanks, bro. So what I say? Hundred. So seven hundred on top of the eighteen fifty. So right there, we're at twenty five hundred and fifty calories just off the workout. 
and our base metabolic rate. So then you have to add in what your, your needs would be your non-energy, uh, non-exercise activity thermogenesis. And that will be from like walking around. Right. And so that depends on what kind of job you have. So if you're a really high active job, you can burn up to 800 to a thousand calories just from working. Most sedentary people are going to be around like 200 to 400. So then you add that on top of there. So then we're looking at like 2,950 calories for the day. If you ran a six mile run weighing 70 kilograms, and then that's when you kind of, kind of break things out into figuring out what that specific person is going to need. If you weighed 70 kilograms, I would have them, that's about 155 pounds. So I'd start with the protein at about 155. I would really like the one gram of protein per uh, pound of body weight. It's a really safe place for endurance athletes. If you're really cranking it up, you can go up to like 1.2 is kind of where I'll put people. So that could be, um, 186 to 180 to 155 grams of protein. And so we would take that out. So it'd be 180 grams of protein times four. So that's 720 calories out of the 200, uh, out of the 2,950. And then from there, we would, we would, I would set their floor for their fats based on what they are doing on their day to day. The more active they are at a lower rate. So if they are a construction worker or a hospital worker, healthcare worker, and they're walking around a lot, they're probably burning more in the, in the fat stores because it's such a low work rate, right? Like if you're under about 70%, this is like the, when you start talking about keto and where people want to think keto is good for your endurance, it's good if you're really, really low, if you're going really, really slow. So like walking around is going to be mostly burning fat, quote unquote, you'd be in that fat burning zone. So I'd like to set the floor at whatever they're doing. So say for this specific person, they're relatively sedentary, I'll give them 55 grams of, of fat. And so 55 times nine is nine calories per uh, gram of fat. So now we are at 495 in fat plus a 720. So we're at 1200. If you guys can't see this, but Rich is like being nerdy over here, like doing like formulas we're just, and quadratic We're just going all in. He's just, he's just really nerdy. Out <laughs> he's got his glasses on. And so that's about 1,215 calories out of the 2950. Um, and then the rest would be the carbohydrate numbers. So then that would be where the actual macros kind of kick in. So then it'd be about 1,735 uh, calories. So that'd be 433 carbs. So for that specific day, for this specific athlete, they would eat 180 grams of protein, 430 of carbs and 55 of fat to meet that specific day. And say if they ran less, would probably keep that fat at, at the floor there probably keep the protein relatively the same and move things up and down through carbohydrates based on how they respond. Like Bracken, you say you respond well to carbohydrates. So we would definitely slide that scale based on what you were doing that day. Um, and yes, I did just nerd out. How do you account for strength training? So strength training that you burn a lot less calories than you would think for strength training. And that ends up being like, it's, um, it's per hour. I think it's like 300 calories per hour. If it's like basic training. And that's like if you're doing sets and reps, but if you're doing like CrossFit style training, I kind of push that into like another mile. So if you're doing like a 15 minute AMRAP and you're working at that higher rate, essentially that would be like a mile and a half or two miles of running in terms of caloric expenditure. And so I would just kind of add that back into whatever that, that the full total day of work would be. So the, the non-believer, the skeptic in me would be like, this is so much data and calculations for one day. But then logically you would look at that and say, you have to do that one yeah. time. 
that this establishes a, a, a normal day, which would be a lift and a six mile run, no quality, no long run, no recovery day, just that this is your standard day. So now instead of having to do that each day, my assumption would be you can now just cal up or cal down depending on quality versus recovery. And now you're not making huge calculations anymore once you establish your normal Totally. Day. And what you could do, you could take your expenditure based on the week. If you want to be like Bracken, like someone like you just wants to eat the same thing every single day. And then you could- And I actually don't. You would, ra you would rather- I take extra helpings on days that I do big work and I take three quarter helpings on days I don't. So- I, I and I'm the same way. Bit. Like my appetite fluctuates with the work that I'm doing, and I, I'm I'm a big eater as is. So like, I'm okay with eating a lot more if I do on a big day. Not everybody is like, and I'm sure Kirk from the people that you've had eat more. Sometimes it's just hard. Like 430 grams of carbohydrates, that's a lot of food. And for like a regular person to get that in, who might only be eating 250, it's a huge dose of carbohydrates that they need to get into their day. Um, but to optimize your performance and to make sure you're getting that proper recovery and make sure that you're like, sleeping well is one thing I've really found. If your sleep is all a mess, like the first place I go is trying to figure out if they're matching their output with their input, because that can really make you help with that restful state and really allow you to recover through sleep on top of recovering through like, the macronutrients that you're putting in your body. So you could, al you could also just take the total amount of work that you're doing and then just break it out even. Because, you know, the body, we, we're not going to, it's not going to matter what you're doing day to day because it is one big pool of energy and like, they're not necessarily like, okay, this day's over. So yesterday doesn't count. So you can break it up and have it one, like have an even amount of macros every single day if you wanted to. If you're running low on carbs, just slam a couple of red, red thunders. thunders. Get, on, get, on, get on with your day. All right. So to simplify this general basal metabolic rate, you can, you can guess on, let's say male athlete, 160 pounds, uh, 1800 a day, female athlete, maybe 1400 a day, 1500 a day. And then you can just simply add in your daily activity guesstimate and your work output from your workout. If you want to go that route. And then once you get a feel for it, like you're going to be able to just fluctuate pretty easily there, right? That's how I'm under sounds very complicated. Now, I don't know if I want to hone in on that too much more. What I want to do unless you have more to say, of course, is, okay, there's at least half the people out there going, I'm right. not going to fucking do this. Like, are you, are you kidding me? Like, at least half people are like, not going to work for me. Bracken's, Bracken's counting in helpings, okay? Not macros. Totally. calories. So I'm going to take an extra. So for the Brackens of the world, which are just, they're just not going to take the time to do it. What, what do you do with them? So, yeah, that's why this is not for everybody. And you don't have to do this calculation every single day. Like, like I said, I use a tool like I, that I've built to make it fairly easy that I trust. But then we would kind of go through for someone like Bracken and go through each and every meal that you're eating. So we can talk about the actual servings that you're having and just kind of have a guesstimate on that. It's like, okay, for lunch, I have half a cup of rice. Like, all right, we'll have a cup and see, and then take that feedback for how you're, you're feeling during your workouts, how you're feeling during your run, how you look, how you feel about your body composition. And then we can kind of twist, turn the knobs that way, because you're still getting the food in. It doesn't necessarily have to be as pinpoint. So it just matters on, on what type of person you want. If you want to be that qualitative person that takes in all uh, quantitative person that takes in all the data and wants to see the numbers, or if you just don't want to add more stress or more stuff into your life, it could be as simple as adding servings or adding, adding helpings, but like kind of, again, creating that awareness, like where can you put these things in and how can you like, and then paying attention to what's actually happening during the workouts. Mm -hmm. We're going to have pushback on this because, again, people don't want to do math and they don't want to stress mm -hmm. over food. And when food and nutrition becomes a stress, it becomes counterproductive. However, my, my response to them, again, as the skeptic, my response would be that this is no different than starting polarized training. 
if you want to do 80-20, you have to calculate your first month because you have to go back through what you've been doing and figure out what your split currently is. And that requires math and, and writing and planning. And then you have to script out what your best week should look like. But just like 80-20, where it requires buy-in early on, and then once you trust it and do it for a while, you realize, holy crap, running more easy gets me faster. That's awesome. I feel good on my other days. And then you stop having to do math because once you have your formula for what a week looks like, now when you raise volume, you understand what the ramifications are and you don't have to go in and tweak everything. You have a feel for what you do. This is going to work the exact same way. It's a front load. And it's work. not easy, right? And like how it's not easy for people to run easy up front, it'll be the same kind of way only you have to, you eat much more than you run. So it's like a constant thought for like the first six to eight weeks for people really trying to get through this. And that's why it's easier to just be like, all right, well, just go paleo, stop eating carbohydrates and you'll be fine because it's just one rule that you have to do instead of taking everything into consideration, like how you would be like, it's like, okay, now I'm going to add hill sprints and that'll make me faster. It's like, well, based off, off of what else you're doing, people want that easy answer. People want that magic pill, but it takes a lot of that work up front and it, it isn't easy. It's just, it's not like, I wish it was, but it really isn't it's in to maximize your performance. I mean, it's just kind of the cost. You said leap of faith earlier, and that's exactly what it is. People had to leap of faith into 80-20 training. Mm -hmm. You shouldn't think, or you wouldn't think that running more easy makes you faster. And yet I can't even tell you the number of messages that we've got from either our own athletes or from the listeners who all just PR during the OCR stars. They PR their mile coming off base phase or coming off whatever, or not sharpening. And holy crap, I just set a lifetime PR. Like your leap of faith suddenly paid off. The same thing happens. You have to take a leap of faith to say, maybe I have to eat more. And maybe I have to track my, my meals up front. And maybe I'm going to feel stressed for six to eight weeks. And then suddenly 12 weeks later, you're, you're, you're doing things that you normally wouldn't have been able to. Yeah, you can take the reins off quite a bit. And if you really want to get into it and, and making sure that, that, because it's a leap of faith, because Yes, you want to make sure your performance is going well, but you also want to make sure your body composition stays in order. And I mean, there's definitely an aspect of looking good for a lot of people who are in involved in our sport and wanting, you know, performance is great, but the byproduct of looking good is also pretty, pretty nice as well. So telling people to eat more or to track what they're doing is really hard to kind of get past because they're like, well, I don't want to get fat. And it's a matter of like, well, you have to test this out to see it if that will happen, because if not, we can always rein things back. So that's another thing that I do like to do sometimes, again, a matter, a matter of, of the relationship that the person has with body composition and with food in general is trying to get on the scale and making sure that it's another piece. It's another data point, like seeing eating more and then seeing the scale go down is incredibly empowering or seeing it not move at all. And just, you feel better and you feel happier is an awesome experience. And it also can kind of give some relief to that thing. It's like, oh, I don't want to get fat. If you can actually see what's happening and, and track that data along and look at it as data and, and not anything else but that, because the number associated with your body composition or your weight, it, it is just a number, but it's hard to get past. But if you can really take it and track it and, and just remove it from this number that you have in your head, it's really helpful. Um, Kirk, have you found that same? Do you, do you, in, do you encourage people to check the scale? Yeah. Oh, of course. If you're going to be playing with diet, I, I, the one thing that I just want to talk about with this, because I have this conversation a lot, like every day with people is what, what we're explaining now, we're trying to objectify, right? We are trying to make this like a mathematical objectivity for performance, but what we're leaving out is the subjective nature of life. 
emotional eating, social occasions, um, people who say like, you're making it sound so easy. Like I just have to compute doot, 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 and here's what I eat. And it's that easy. I just put this in my body. I'm a machine. People don't work that way. They get done with dinner and they want something sweet. They have kids or work stresses them out and they go for that pint of Ben and Jerry's. A lot of people struggle. Like we're making it sound nice in theory. Like, Hey, just eat this. Right. It's super simple. It's not though. So like, how, what do you say to those people who swing on the emotional highs and lows and use food as a tool? Most of us do. Heck, I use food for comfort at time. I'm sure you do as well. How do you address it with people who just like emotionally are tied to food? And I know it's a weird take to go down, but a lot of people are. We all probably are. It's like the most important route to go down because that is everyone has their own relationship with food and how everyone has their own internal strife. And they think it's unique to them. It's the same way with food. I mean, if the people who have good relationships with food, they're probably the anomaly on this, right? Because everybody has something, whether it is comforting or whether it is something they reach for when they're stressed out to make them feel good, or if it creates some sort of like shame and guilt, there's a lot that goes into it. And so it's a matter of, of just having that kind of conversation, right? And just, and that's why I mentioned that right in the beginning. It's like, you don't want to open up this can of worms if it's not a route that they want to go down. And that comes down, I mean, this is where it's tricky because it is very much up to each individual person, but like figuring out like what is going to work for them in terms of if it's the Bracken approach with helpings and servings, or if it's like they need to meal prep and make sure they have regular things at their, at their fingertips so that they take the emotional side out of it so that it's just very black and white straightforward. But again, that's more work for people and it's hard to get people to buy into like things like meal prep. So what I, what I worry about with that, and I don't know, Bracken, I'm guessing you would Maybe you'd feel the same way. So I don't track. I'm an intuitive eater as a trainer who mm -hmm. tell people to track at times. And some people I put on a paleo nutrition plan and they feel a heck of a lot better and lose weight. Or we carb cycle or we go vegan or we do a balanced nutrition plan. I do them all with people depending on their circumstances. Um, but like deciding what is best for somebody is like, I feel like near impossible to decide off, off the top, right? And somebody who, I mean... I'm going to say the number of people who have an objective relationship with food is very low. Like you had said, like, oh, I just need to eat. So I'm going to eat right now. And I'm going to choose the healthiest foods because my taste buds don't exist. And I really don't care. Like, where do you, I just don't know. Like, where do you, where do you like start? Like, where do you, like, where do you start with those people? With the people who are, are, are the emotional driven ones? Which yeah. Most which are. a lot are. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I think the awareness piece is huge and just making, I still start the same place with, with tracking and figuring out like how they feel about it and just get gauging on their relationship. Cause they'll tell you flat out, be like, I'm not sure I want to get on the scale or I don't know if I, I've tried counting quote unquote counting calories before and it wasn't my thing. So it is just that conversation and figuring out what their relationship is with it in, in the past. I mean, there isn't, I mean, it sounds like a cop out answer and it kind of is, but it really is person to person. No one is just going to be able to be handed a meal plan and be like, eat just this. And with no outside explanation, that will just be, setting them up, setting them up to fail. And that's part of the, the conversation as well is that it is going to be hard. You probably will fail. And just having like some self-compassion on this piece, because we don't want this to cause more stress and we don't want this to lead it down a tunnel where it is the cycle where they're looking to food to give them something that it, it doesn't necessarily give them. And just allowing them to have that compassion piece. And just like when you screw up, it's fine. Just, you can, you just can forgive yourself and keep moving forward. Um, and which is hard because we're always our own worst critic, you know, like, and, and beating ourselves up over the things that we're trying to do well. 
it's pretty common. So just allowing people to have some compassion with themselves and just letting them know that it's going to be hard and it's going to be, there's going to be some setbacks and it's a long process. It's not going to happen overnight. I think just having that conversation up front is, is an important piece. What do you think since you're having the conversation so often? Oh God, it's so, I mean, I'm, most people come to me overweight and unhappy and have eat, eaten their feelings for years. So like, so that that's every part, day conversation for me, honestly, it just ties so much more to the subjectivity side of food than right. the objectivity side of food. So I just thought it was worth, it was worth talking about. Bracken, I see you want to say something. I don't know. Not, not, not particularly. I don't have strong feelings on how to approach it, but I have strong feelings about why people approach it certain ways. We, as, as, I mean, everyone who listens to this is some sort of, of, athletic or fitness oriented person in their daily life. And we oftentimes do extra sets or extra miles or overtrain or get lazy and undertrain. And those are known to be the ebbs and flows of training. But we do the same thing in every other area of our life, nutrition included. And yet when we over undertrain, we don't get this huge, generally, some people do, but we generally don't feel huge guilt or emotion attached to it. It's usually frustration or regret. Like, ah, oh, man, I shouldn't have taking that workout one too far because now I'm sore. All right, next time I'm going to fix this. With food, it, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. Instead, we spiral. We, oh, I shouldn't have done that. And now I'm guilty and I'm going to do it more. And so we hit the same problems we hit with training, except our reaction to it is much more emotional based and generally less healthy. And I think that's why it helps to be an athlete and be able to draw the parallels between the two. And also to be able to have an, an overarching goal that keeps you pointed towards things because our goal is often what makes training more fun and sustainable. And the right goal often makes nutrition more tolerable and more of a healthy relationship rather than an emotional one. Yeah, I totally agree with that. And like you, you hit a good point about talking about like the stress of it. And as athletes, it's almost like a natural stress reliever that we have where mm -hmm. non-athletes, their stress reliever is typically food. So that's like where a real nasty cycle kind of comes in for the, for those type of people. Well, and I think a lot of people get frustrated with workouts that elites and pros mm. post because like we've talked about ad nauseum, people don't get on and be like crushed my recovery run. It's like, Hey, I just ran 10 by mile at four flat, you know, or I did a 20 mile tempo at five ten. That's the kind of stuff you see people post because they're proud of it. With food, it's the same thing. It's like about to smash 10 stacks of pancakes. Cause I had a great long run or head into uh, heading out to breakfast and we're just going to eat all the bacon or they have this huge bowl of ice cream and they're a 130 pound runner. You know, those are the things you brag about, but those aren't the things you live on a daily basis. And yet, just like we like to copy pros workouts, we also like to say, well, I just, I've upped my volume. I've started a real training plan. I get to treat myself hmm. a lot. And there's that that correlation too, where yeah, you do get to treat yourself if you need to treat yourself, but you also don't get to use it as a crutch to, to be unhealthy. And it's not a justification that, well, now that I'm working hard, I can just pour in everything and I want. And that's one thing that is very damaging when people start to exercise so they can eat. And that's where a lot of these tracking mm -hmm. devices kind of kill me in, in terms of like my fitness pal does it and they'll like sync to your watch or whatever. And then it will add the calories that you burned onto your end of like your day. So if you have your caloric total set at like 3000 and then you did a run, it'll be like, okay, now it's 3,700. And so people will just kind of chase that. And, you know, that's not why we're doing it. And again, that's again, like figuring out what that goal is and getting behind it. And the goal isn't to 
eat a, a bowl of ice cream, right? It's to fuel the performance, it's to feel better, it's to, and like why you're doing the performance in the first place is another reason to tie that goal. It's like, okay, I want to be the best possible example for my kids. So therefore I need to eat properly, I need to train well, and not necessarily like, I just wanna go crazy eating ice cream, I just wanna eat burgers, I just wanna feel like I deserve this this food. Like that's not necessarily a goal. Mm-hmm. Kirk, you talked about it, how we're not a machine and we have emotional ties to it. And we love the car analogies on here. And it'd be so simple if we were a machine. We understand that if you put premium fuel in a car versus the base fuel, you get better mileage. Your car functions better. We understand that if we don't let it get too low between Phillips, you get better miles per gallon. It works best when it's topped off and when it's consistently that you put the fuel back in that you use. If you don't replace it, you get too low and your miles per gallon drops and other things can rise up. We understand that you have to take care of it in that way. And we get our sense of satisfaction from putting in good fuel, knowing it's about to perform really well. And then after you fill up and you check your miles per gallon, you're like, hey, I was up three miles per gallon in this tank. That's awesome. If we could simply approach our fueling that way, we'd all be very, very mentally healthy with our food. The difference is our car doesn't sigh with satisfaction when you get a tasty, you know, premium unleaded versus just unleaded, whereas we do. The car doesn't look forward to a special oil change, but we do. And somehow the, the, we have that unhealthy relationship that develops because we, we are made to enjoy food. We're given taste buds for a reason. It's a pleasurable experience, but like we, like we do with everything, we tend to go too far. It's, it's literally, we were wired that way. You know, we had to be incentivized to eat food, to stay alive, to keep the species going before there was a, a surplus in food and everything like that was available to us at all times. So that's why fatty foods taste great. It's why sugar tastes great. Like you want to eat that. And like, you get that dopamine rush when you think about it, even when you think about eating something, you kind of feel out of control. You feel like an urge to get it. That's your biology from years past where there wasn't that much food making sure that you eat. And so now we're fighting against that because there's food everywhere. And now it's, we're, we're fighting against our own biology and it's hard <laughs> and it's, it's, and being able to kind of slow down and, and noticing that that's what's happening is also a real important part of the emotional part, like stopping and thinking about what you're actually feeling and what you're thinking before you're going to eat. And then after you eat, like, did that accomplish what you were hoping for? Or do you feel worse now? Like, what did it feel like before? And what did it feel like during? What did it feel after? And this is also an annoying piece. I find this to be much more annoying than just being like, all right, I ran 10 miles today, so I get to eat this much more. Like that calculation is much easier than sitting down and slowing things down so that I know what I feel as I'm eating. I find that to be a real difficult thing for for myself to do personally and for to have people do because it's you do eat so often and you're just kind of driven to, to act on food a lot of times. What, um, what are your thoughts? Like, like on, I call it like the whoop syndrome. Can this end up being like a problem for people? Like you can play head games with yourself. For example, your whoop strap will say, ah, I'm not recovered. I'm in the red, but yet you have a quality day. And let's say you messed up your diet and, and you couldn't track, or you were under calorie or over calorie. Does it ever play mind games with you then? It can. It, it definitely can. Um, I had that really bad with the with the whoop and like I had an aura ring or my Apple Watch to bed. I was like just trying so hard to get good sleep that I never got good sleep. It stressed me yeah. out to the point where I slept like I slept poorly all the time. And now I don't wear anything. It's much better. I sleep great. That's what I'm wondering about, like that sort of problem. I think I, I don't know. I, I would push back against it because if you are 
fueling properly, like you'll perform well and you should feel good and everything else should kind of take care of itself. So you're saying it, you feel if people think that they didn't eat enough, that they'll race poorly, even though they, they, they shouldn't. Or like, let's say somebody yeah. splurged and had a family event and then they have a recovery day the next day. And they say, like, I overate yesterday by 600 calories. I'm going to go longer and harder today. And it messes with their training cycle or it like, I could just see, I could see type a wired people maybe messing mm -hmm. that up a little bit. I yeah. don't know. Do you know what I'm I, saying? I can kind of see it the opposite way in terms of borrowing time. Like, oh, I'm going long tomorrow. So today it's on, you know, like I'm, I'm going to take care of this later. Right. Sure. Like, yeah. So you can definitely play games like that. Like trying to try to borrow that time or trying to outrun something that you've like a mistake that you've made. But that comes back to that self-compassion piece. It's like, you can't just throw it all out. You can't just say, oh, what the heck with it all. And just have a full weekend of binge eating and drinking just because you made one mistake. It's just like, short-term memory keep going and if you make a mistake in that moment like you just got to say sorry it's, it's got to be compassionate to yourself and keep things moving um but i could definitely it definitely would pop things up but again just trying to figure out how you're thinking and how you're feeling in those moments it's the danger of looking at it the same way we look at that athletics usually i think it's a good thing to look at your life like you look at athletics but because it keeps things in perspective and it gives you good coping strategies. But the danger of this is that in athletics, it's always, what have you done for me lately? And we're judged by our most recent performance. It's not until someone's career is done that people look back and say, wow, they were so consistent for years and that was awesome. Usually it's, what did they do last week? And with diet, that's the problem. What we want to hit is look back and see a great month or a great six months or a great 12 months. But what we do is we look back at the last 24 mm. hours. And if we've done great, we are great. And if we've done poorly, we are terrible and we're a, a terrible human being and we are emotional when it should always be the 10,000 foot view. Where is my line graph? You know, are there little blips that I can't even see from space? Or is it just so obvious that even from outer space, I could see that I'm making mistakes constantly? Like where is my scatter plot? That's what we need to be aware of. But we get caught up in the very moment. Like Kirk said, I was bad yesterday. I need to do better today where we all know that doing back-to-back -back speed workouts won't make you faster right. in eight days, but doing two workouts every eight days will make you faster in eight weeks. The same thing has to apply. And that's kind of why I like the scale again is just when you have a bad day, you can see that it did affect your, your, the scale in some capacity, but then like two days later, it's fine. You can kind of see these patterns emerge. And that again, will give you the uh, allowance to just kind of keep plugging forward instead of throwing it all out because it's not like the one, the one-offs that are going to really kill you. It's the, the repeated, uh, back-to-back -back screw ups or, um, not, not a very kind word there, but those days that you're not on top of your nutrition or you've kind of thrown it out and, and aren't doing the things that you know, you need to do when you do it kind of like a, uh, a bender of poor eating that's worth those off. Like the one-offs aren't going to. Um, and that's why the scale is, is important to see that. So that after one screw up, you can kind of get back in and get back to the plan. So I'm curious on your thoughts on eating mm -hmm. windows. Cause I feel like this kind of starts leading to that. I screwed up. I ate at 10 PM last night. I binged. Do I make up for it by eating later in the day, the next morning? Do I wait a little longer to, to live off those carbs? Do I just shut my window off earlier the next day? Maybe 6 p.m. I have dinner instead of 8. Do you like consistent eating windows? Do you like playing with windows or do you think windows don't I think matter? the only time they matter is if you're doing multiple workouts in a day or if there's like an evening and a morning and you want to just replenish the carbohydrates 
quicker. Aside from that, like we're really efficient in getting the energy and getting and processing everything. Like we don't just like lose things. Like once you get that food gets into your um, intestines, like we're going to get everything that comes out of that. And if we're sticking to a plan and if it's your daily consumption over the days and weeks, like it shouldn't really matter when you're eating. So unless you have a back-to-back workouts, that's the only time I really are going to um, kind of press on the, the meal timing of things. So you don't care about 10 hour windows versus t- eight hour windows or 12 no. versus nine. You don't care about no. that stuff. And like, that's something, you know, with the intermittent fasting kind of trend that came in that again, it's just easy numbers for people to, to think of. It's like, okay, 14 hours should be my fasted window and eating all and the rest. But like, there's no backing to that. You know, there's like 14 is no different than 13, no different than 12. Like, and like, I don't think that that matters in any way. In my opinion, intermittent fasting, I'm just going to chime in quick. Does really well for people with compromised GI systems. It just gives the GI tract a break and allows it to heal if you have disorders there. I, I do see a benefit for people that do have stomach issues, like digestive problems. It can be very beneficial. I think from a performance standpoint, if you're getting in what you need to get in, I don't think it matters yeah. at all either. That's and people just lose my- weight with intermittent fasting, inter- intermittent fasting because they just end up eating less. <laughs> it's like eating it's not less, that right. complicated. With that, But a good point about that. I actually did notice that my breathing was better during some phases where I was fasting. Fasting is a good tool to use. Like it's not, it's not a great thing to like be like, I only eat between noon and six. Like then that's dogmatic. But if you use it as a tool to kind of bring it into your practice, like I will do some fasting. I'll probably do fasting in the next couple weeks or months as my season kind of winds down again, just to kind of recalibrate. But that's how I found out that I was breathing better without having things like cliff bars in my system without having like processed sugar, like, cause I was running completely fasted. So I was like, Oh, I'm actually breathing better now. So this isn't an external environment thing. It's something that I'm eating. Mm-hmm. Well, food induces most foods, a lot of foods is we can get a whole rabbit hole of alkaline and like oh, acidic yeah. type foods, which can create inflammation and, and such. But most food when we digest or it like ingest a meal is causing some sort of bodily inflammation as well. Like in general, um, as a byproduct of like the digestive process. So like going a longer period of time, reduce some sort of inflammation and obviously your bronchioles and your alveoli and allowed you to breathe better, which is just like yeah. an interesting byproduct of like having to digest less. So there are extenuating circumstances for sure. Um, I want to just pivot this conversation just a little bit. Okay. I feel like we've been talking a lot of like numbers and like volume of food and how much and all of that, but we're not, we haven't really talked types at all. We haven't talked about like, we haven't like dove into like, a lot of these people aren't going to track their food. I just know it, you know, so they're just not. So now we talk and we shift the conversation. Like, what are we supposed to be eating? And there's a lot of different nutrition models out there. Now, what I'm understanding is you're preaching the balanced nutrition model, like allow a bit of everything and don't try to cut out grains. Don't try to cut out dairy. Don't try to cut out animal products. Don't try to cut out soy. sounds like you're just saying like eat balanced. And that is the best approach in general. Is that eat what you like, you know, like if you could, like, if you don't like the food you're eating, it won't be enjoyable. So yeah, like figure out a way to eat the food that you like to eat that is going to agree with you. Um, and then when we get into like the actual types of foods, that's where I find it to be a slippery slope of people getting into that dogmatic mindset. It's like, oh, I do the carnivore diet. So I only eat meat and meat and vegetables are bad for you. And it's like, there's no way that that's true. And like people are just taking little pieces of whatever they've heard someplace or the opposite. It's like, oh, meat, meat will give you a heart attack. It's like, it certainly will not. But like, people have convinced themselves of of one thing or another. And it's, it's a way again, that, that magic pill and just trying to focus on one thing. So I don't necessarily like to touch it because I don't 
because I don't want to cut off any option down the road. I want to touch them all. I want to like fire off diet, like diets that people have heard of in relation to athletic performance and get like a hot take. Yeah. So I won't recommend, I don't want to get into the idea of recommending them, but I'll definitely talk about them. Let's talk about it. Right. Are you cool with that? Super cool, man. (laughs) Okay. Bracken, what's your first curiosity? What type of diet? I'll let you start this train. Well, let's just, as a running podcast, what's the single most common diet that you hear people kick around? It's generally low carb, high fat, because it, I can become a fat adapted athlete. Let's start there. Whether it's true keto or if it's just fringe, like not able to go all the way, let's start there. High fat, low carb. I am going to teach my body to be more efficient fueling off mm-hmm. fat. So yeah, I touched on this for a second before. Like if you want to run really, really slow, then you can do that. It's going to be really rare that we're going to use one specific fuel source. Um, at pretty much any time you're going to be using carbohydrates and fats while you're exercising, unless you get like at a real high end and you're going to be pretty much just glycolytic, but it's going to be a blend of both where I find this to be helpful is in the ultra world. Um, if you are able to eat like less, it's going to give a little le- bit less chances of GI distress and kind of what Kirk was saying before, like the less you eat, the more, uh, the, the less inflammation that will happen as a byproduct of digestion. So I, I don't think there's, really any place for this in obstacle course racing or in anything below like i don't know a 50 mile race i'm gonna just say race in general if you are completing i think you can complete a 50 mile race in ketosis i think if you are racing 50 is still it's too high intensity to race yeah buddy mark that's gonna do it I think if you were a if you were an aid worker in a foreign country spending eighteen hours on feet just administering you know medical uh, needs, that could be really useful to be in ketosis. But like you said, on feet, standing, existing, working. But if you have to put out, if you have to go past aerobic threshold, you're just going to hit this massive lull in your ability to run. And to be in ketosis, you have to be like your body has to be. Uh, letting ketones into your bloodstream. So like people will say they're doing the keto diet, but they're not testing and seeing if they are actually in ketosis in any way. And ketones are an awesome fuel source, but the chances of people kind of being there, because you have to be really low in protein too. So people like, even like chicken is not a viable option for something like this because it's just high in protein, not high in fat. Your fats need to be crazy, mm-hmm. crazy high. Your protein needs to be kind of low to actually be in quote unquote ketosis where you're running off ketones and fats but yeah you got to go really really slow (laughs) i am i went into ketosis for an entire month uh i've talked about it in brief but i've experimented with them all um you know what it took me to get into ketosis it took me eating sticks of butter it took me coke scoops of coconut oil all day it took me basically only ground beef and sausage it took me the more cheese than anybody can ever fathom I couldn't so much as eat chicken breast because it was too lean. And as we know, well, as you'll now know, protein is basically converted into glycogen or glucose in the system. It needs to be a yeah, process well. and it needs to be. So, so it took me pricking my finger twice a day. It took me the most conscious effort to get into ketosis. And it was a biatch to stay in. I couldn't even hit 20 grams of carbs. To the, I couldn't even have a cup of broccoli. So what I'm getting at is this, is that, is that most people say they're like, I'm on a fat adapted diet. Really? you're staying in a carbohydrate dominant system and just not filling your tank at all because your body hasn't shifted to look for fat as a fuel source. It hasn't started producing ketones. 
because you're not doing it properly. So you're just running with like a low tank yeah. all the time. And that is that is the problem that that is what most people fall into. I think we have to ask ourselves why certain systems exist. Why are we so efficient with carbs? It's because our body was made to use it for activity. Why do we have ketones? Why can we enter ketosis? But why is it so difficult to get there? Like, what is the purpose of ketosis? It's the ultimate fight or flight survival yeah. system for this is like desert island. I'm starving, but I'm going to save my life. It's really hard to get there. And then it's your emergency rash, a raft, like open in case of emergency. But this is not going to get you across the ocean. It's going to get you to it's gonna be, yeah. It, this, it can pass the blood brain barrier so you can think. It fuels your brain so that like, you can continue to look for food. <laughs> it's not like... Yeah. This is not a lifestyle. This is an emergency system that we are lucky to have hardwired into our body. But it's difficult to get there because, again, this is break glass in case of emergency type of energy, not let's develop this and become a super endurance. That's literally energy. like the biohack. It's like something that we have within us that people mm -hmm. are, are actually hacking. Kirk, how did your brain function? Did you do you recall? I was um I was lifting heavy and I was running three times a week. I was just on like, Hey, I'm going to be a fit phase before I found Spartan before I started really competing again. Um, no, I had to live because here's the deal. If you're going to try to fat adapt, I was already four or 5% body fat. Okay. That is a terrible decision. If you're as lean as I was to start with people who have a hundred pounds of fat to lose can feel really damn good in ketosis because they have a buffet around their waistline. They have an unlimited supply of fat to pull from. Mm. I had nothing. So I felt like absolute dog shit. And when I, I was foggy, I was relying on stimulants, caffeine in particular, multiple times a day to keep alert. And when I went out for runs, my governor was set so low. I mean, I was trying to run seven minute pace, which would normally have been a jog at the time. And I was miserable. And my kidneys hurt because of all the, the excess uh, process. I had back pain from kidneys being inflamed. It was not good for me. Not saying it's not for everybody, but my rev limiter was set so damn low. And I just don't think it has a place for high output performance. It's like if your heart rate's going to get in and stay above 120 or 130 beats a minute as a generalization, ketosis isn't the right move for performance. That's just my opinion based on my one month window of a study and then what I feel, what I felt when I went out there to try to perform. I could lift weights fine. My life energy was low. My, my energy was there for weightlifting, but that's a low heart rate activity was not there for sustained effort. And, and it's been studied, right? And whenever there is a study and there is some performance metric in it, it is always below the carbohydrate group, but they're not, they're not technically, most of the studies that I've been, I've looked at, they don't necessarily, they're not testing for performance. They're testing for, um, like sparing carbohydrates that like, that's what they're testing. They're seeing like, if you change your diet, like, will it change the fuel you use? Like, yes, it will, but that doesn't necessarily mean you will perform better. And that shows in the lab. Like if you read them, it's like, okay, yeah, if I eat a high fat diet, it'll spare my carbohydrates, but it will make my hour time trial on a bike way worse. <laughs> so it's like, well, what's the point then? That's exactly the point I was going to close with is that every study shows that you can shift Suddenly I'm drawing 80% of my energy from fat rather than 60. And it's like success. And I was slower. So that's always the point that you have to say, did I accomplish my goal? Yes. But was it effective as an athlete? Well, probably no. And that just the final piece is that you're going to find people that this yeah. works for. Because mm -hmm. almost anything on earth, there's someone that it works for. But half the people might not be totally upfront 
and the other half are genetic. And they might not be on the podium. <laughs> like they might, they might mm-hmm. get through a race and they might do better than the one they did before, but might not see them on the podium. Yeah, I feel great. The whole race comment tells me you're not racing. I've guys who have small ultras or consistently been top 10 in ultras and just say, I just felt so good the whole time. Like go read Max. <laughs> you're doing ultra it wrong. Yeah. Go ring, read John Albans, read Killian's. You don't feel great the whole time. Mm-hmm. So anyways, it can work for people. I would never tell someone not to try it. I would just say that I'm skeptical that it could ever work for the masses because it, we weren't designed that way. Yeah. There's people listening that are doing it and feel great and probably tell everybody to do it. Yeah. And you, that, I mean, we're just giving our own opinions based on our own experience. We're not, we're not writing a Bible here. We're just talking out loud really. And so let's, let's just leave that alone. Cause we could spend more on it, but let's jump to the opposite end of the spectrum. Let's talk, you know, game changers mm. came out uh, two years ago. I had to have that damn conversation with every freaking client of mine about I'm going to go vegan and animal products are bad it was exhausting. I have a strong stance on this. I think people know that. However, what is your take on, on going completely vegan, which I have done as well. I did that. Yeah. I've, I've played around with uh, doing vegan also. Um, I'm not compelled by the, the movies or the information that is out there. I do not think it is better for performance. I think that you can still, if you are tracking and trying to measure everything versus like the input output, like the whole thing we said before, like I think you can still perform fairly well. Um, I think it, it, I don't think it's objectively harder to get those protein numbers in without just crushing protein shakes and having them be plant-based, which isn't, which isn't as bioavailable as like a whey protein shake. it takes, it takes longer, longer to break. You got you need to take in a little bit more even, and that's hard. It's harder to even measure. Um, I don't think it will make you a better athlete. I think you could feel better doing it, but I don't think it's going to be better for performance. What do you, Brecken, what do you think? Well, I did it. I went, well, I didn't go vegan, but I went meat free for seven months. Meat. So were you eating eggs or fish? Nope. I took all meat out. Okay. And my inflammation levels dropped significantly at the onset. Blood testing or you could just feel it? Uh, like aches, the air, areas that I was always inflamed after workouts just weren't after a couple of weeks. And I think that would speak to the remove something for six to six months. And um, I, yeah, I felt good. I, I had other things that didn't feel as great. Um, I started having afternoon fog. I started having um, more fatigue in my life. And I think that it's because it's, you have to be so intentional about where you get everything yeah. else now. You can do it the same, but now you have to be so purposeful and dialed in, and everyone knows that I'm not. So yeah, I really upped my intake of protein, but then that became a chore. And I eventually went back to it because I just, it wasn't, it, it started to become not convenient. So I... I was I did this while I was prepping for high rocks, so I was able to gain weight. I went from 169 to 181, and it was it was pretty good weight. I looked good at that weight. I felt good at that weight. I was strong at that weight, but I wasn't better. I, I don't believe that any of these things are like they call it the game changer. I don't think they're game changers unless you find an intolerance that you address. If they're medically game changing, that's a different story. But uh, the documentary itself, I did find compelling but it was also very faulty. It was faulty, compelling, and there are a lot of inaccuracies and a lot of false equivalencies that got made in there. But uh, I think the fact of the matter is it all comes down to the person and it all comes down to the fact that these aren't magic bullets. So yeah, I felt good doing it, but it just wasn't sustainable for me long-term. I think 
I think there's a, um, going vegetarian or vegan, there's definitely a honeymoon phase. Um, it's like the first date, like, oh, everything is like sexy and nice and this is exciting and, and you're going to feel real good and alive doing it. But then eventually you need to become the rich Ryan nerd and start shifting the formula and doing your calculations to make sure you're getting everything in that you need to get in in order to to feel healthy and perform well. What I noticed is I had felt real good. You know, you know, meat and animal mm -hmm. products are hard to break down. They're slow digesting food and they can stress the system a little bit. So you take that away and sure, you're going to feel probably a little lighter, a little a lighter on your feet, a little better for a short amount of time. But eventually, like on a cellular level, when you talk micronutrients, which is what we're talking and macronutrients, eventually it's going to catch up with you and you're going to need to be a master puppeteer with how you get everything in your system. I don't think it's a terrible route. I think it needs to be the most conscious route of all of them if you're going to choose to do it. Yeah, it's not as simple as just eliminating all animal products. Like you, you do have to add quite a bit in as well. And yeah, Bracken, I also, I was vegetarian for about two years. I did, I was eating eggs. I wasn't eating healthier, I didn't think. That's another thing. It's not necessarily a healthier diet. I wasn't like, I was still eating mm -hmm. a lot of junk. Oreos, Oreos are, vegan, are vegan, in fact. So, and I was healthier because I had to fill holes and I reached two more vegetables mm. during, and that was good for me. And, and I think what it did for me is it was the pendulum. I was over here, I swung far to this side, and then I swung back more towards the middle. Like, all right, I can bring, I found out that I like more vegetables than I thought I did. And I found new ways to prepare them. And so that was cool for me. But I also found out that I feel and function best, not off zero servings of meat for, per week and not off 25, off about like hmm. three or four to seven. Like one per day, one half to one per day is kind of my sweet spot. And, and I needed to go there to get here. Yeah. And that, that's a good, that's a good point for, for that. Um, and yeah, being able to add more vegetables into your, your meal, your day to day is awfully important. One thing that makes me worried about this is the long-term ramifications for things like game changers, like that we might not see. And, and that this is, this diet in particular is also driven by emotions and morals for some people. So it's not necessarily mm -hmm. just about per performance. And that's why you can't necessarily trust it about performance because there's a bigger agenda mm -hmm. for this. And, you know, I, I commend these people who do have such strong feelings behind this lifestyle, but to say it's for performance is just, I think it's disingenuous. I, and, and it makes me worry that people will go in there and kind of get into this rabbit hole in, because of the morality of it and the performance will suffer and who knows what's going to happen long-term in terms of their, their, their health, if they're not covering their bases, like how we were just talked about. So that's one thing I'd like to caution against for sure. Anytime I see someone's proof for something is look at this person, how successful they are. I immediately discard it just like 140 miles per week, because look at this person or 30 miles per week, because look at this person or keto because of him or vegan because of her. That's, that's not proof. That's anecdotal. And even in best. like the game changers was like Kendrick Ferris now is, is plant-based. Like he didn't grow up plant-based tell you that much. <laughs> like he didn't put on all that muscle from eating plants. A lot of, a lot of those studies were like, I don't want to bring this one up, but like they did this like male erection yeah. study, right? Oh yeah. That was well, of course. Well, I mean, of course they strapped this weird device to like a dude's junk and make him sleep for three nights. And then they give changes diet and give it to him again. Well, of course he's going to have a little stage fright those first <laughs> couple of nights. Like, yeah, you probably weren't as impressive your first couple of nights because you had something attached there that you normally didn't. 
And of course, you're going to get more comfortable with it by day six. And when they shift over to the vegan meal, like, of course, you're going to like go through normal react. It's just like, there was a lot of stuff in there that I really, really, really made me cringe. Mm -hmm. I think there were some good points, but I think a lot of it was like pseudo scare tactic science. And it, it, it bothered me, but it, man, it was so trendy and it was so like people watched it and like, they literally went through all their shit in the garbage and started over like that night. Like people were that compelled by that documentary. And it really made me upset, to be honest. And I think it's good. I think it's good that it caused people to reevaluate their lives. I am all for 100% what you do and why. I really am. But make sure that the information you're looking into is correct. Like the, they had that, I don't know if he was, some, some um, Eastern based uh, strongman was one of the big components. And then they had two power lifters and all three tested positive for um, performance enhancers since the documentary <laughs> came out or two happened once was tested positive like six times prior to it. And there was another guy that they had featured in there and they removed him because he tested positive. So it's, it's kind of one of those things like do it, but for the right reasons. I would never tell someone not to go vegetarian. My parents are vegetarians and have been for 20 years. And they're two of the fittest, healthiest people I know. They're in their 60s and have the bodies and the athleticism of 40-year-olds. Like, it's great. It doesn't mean it. everyone has to, though. I think I think a lot of times, and then we should move on, is I have a, I have a friend who is the self-proclaimed world's most yoked vegan bodybuilder. I trained with him here in Minnesota. He has a huge following. But nobody sees him injecting 200 cc's of bovine testosterone into his ass twice a day. And that's the truth. And he's a steroid user for life. But he has a huge cult following because he's a vegan bodybuilder and does it for moral reasons, which is fine. Um, but it's a misconception. I think a lot of times with that type of diet and performance, you just see a little bit of misleading. And, and I actually really like position documentaries when they say, hey, you should go vegan for sustainability reasons, for moral reasons are great. I will watch that all day. But when I see it about performance reasons, it's actually when it loses me, which is funny because I'm a deer hunter and I consume animal products, but I get the moral side and I get the sustainability piece if people want to argue that. But I, I don't know if I really understand the science behind the It's like a bad argument, but they're going after a new audience. They're just big vegan yeah. is like spreading their tentacles into different places, like where they wouldn't catch the athletes before. <laughs> like that's a way to catch that attention, man. They're taking over. It's funny. If you wanted to change the world's economy and environment... Yeah, making everyone go vegan would be one of the best things you could do. But if you wanted to change the world's populace towards the most athletic, it would probably be less conducive to the masses. And yet they approached that tip of the spear rather than all the rest of it. Mm -hmm. All right. I've had enough. Let's talk about, sorry, I'm going to lead this conversation, but um, so heavily, but let's move to something that I have a pretty strong stance on actually, and that is paleo nutrition. Um, do you, do you guys know what paleo nutrition is? Like how the, how the basis of it, Rich, why don't you talk? Uh, it's, I mean, the name comes from like what we could have eaten as like a cave person. So no processed food essentially to really make it as simple as possible. Right. Like just nothing that comes from boxes, uh, just food that you would get from outside of the grocery store, but like dairy is not part of it as well. There's a whole big, there's a whole bunch of it, right? No dairy, no grains. No, so no dairy, and no grains are literally the, that is, if you're going to simplify no dairy and no grains, mm. um, some would call it like the caveman diet. Um, but it's basically eliminating mm. dairy and grains. And, and the basis for that is, um, if you look at this alkaline and acidic scale of foods, every, every food you eat has a pH. For example, a lemon, which seems very acidic, 
like it's very, you know, sour is actually a very alkaline or basic food. So for example, lemons aren't known to create inflammation in the body. They're known to reduce it. For example, if you're going to look into like it that way. So highly inflammatory grains are about as hard to digest. That's why we need to cook them so long. Right. So anything you need to cook for hours and hours, like if you take like a real like whole grain brown rice, you need to cook it for an hour to even be able to digest it, like probably tough on the system. So that's like the theory behind it. And then dairy, like we're humans, we're not cows, right. we're not meant to, to consume dairy. And that's the basic principle. Like 90% of people show on their IgG, a slight intolerance to dairy in some capacity. And then grains are just inflammatory, hard to break down. So that's why they bring it back to like, what could you really eat almost raw or close to it if you had to, and then cut out cows because we're not cows. That's the gist. Do you guys have any thoughts on that? Um, kind of along the, along the same lines as like, I feel like this was the precursor to keto and then keto just took it a little bit further. It's like, okay, what else can we get rid of? Um, I think there's a really good principles with this. Um, the whole 30 diet or that whole movement I think is really positive and creating awareness around the food that might be, be intolerant for you. And that's kind of the same deal. Have you ever seen the whole 30 deal? Yeah. So it's like the same oh, yeah. thing. Um, I think it's almost the same principles. Um, but for me, again, it's going to be based more, more personal. Like if you don't have like, if quinoa doesn't bother you, like, I don't think that you should not eat quinoa because of a specific diet. It's technically, a seed. I think it's like a pseudo cereals or whatever they call it. Right. Mine's quick. Okay. Go ahead. This is mine. If I had to recommend a diet as a jumping off point, this would be the one I don't like diets, but this is where I would put people to start because it's safe and sustainable. And then you start manipulating from there. Go ahead. I agree with you 100%. When I have somebody walk in my door from like a health standpoint and they feel like trash, they just don't feel well and they're overweight. It's directing people to like a more whole food nutrition. And that's what I really, really enjoy about it is you're eating food with substance. And so that's the basis in which I like. If we're talking from an athletic point of view, like grains are hard in the system and they do create an inflammatory response. And so do animal products. They really do. You want to see high... Uh, pH or low pH counts, which would mean it's acidic, like ground beef, for example, pork, super acidic. So are grains on the same opposite end of the scale. Fruits, vegetables, those things are more safe and you generally feel well after eating them. Um, but some people on the paleo diet will say no, no nuts or seeds, mm -hmm. uh, no potatoes, none of that. Um, I think as an athlete, like you can feel really well on this diet and feel well if you allow white and sweet potatoes on it, which isn't a grain, it's a potato. Stay winter squash, acorn, butternut, um, and spaghetti, any of those squashes. Um, and then just keep those high fatty meats in your diet. I think you're going to feel really, really good. And you might feel a little lighter on your feet, not bogged down after meals, things like that. So I think, I think if you're going to pick one and go down that Avenue, it would be like a modified paleo that allows nuts and seeds and, and potatoes. And it's something that I follow in general. Um, and I notice when I follow it, I definitely feel significantly better. And that's just anecdotal, but it's, it's a good hybrid, but you need to get your carbs in and you need to get them and you need to choose to allow like potatoes and, and things like right. that. And that that's diet. how people find success in terms of weight loss for this is because they do eliminate a lot of the uh, carbohydrates that they end up eating because it ends up being more difficult. So from a performance perspective, that's where I struggle with this one is that it, it, it will be difficult to get, say, 400 grams of carbohydrates in uh, on sweet potatoes. Yeah, you know, that's going to be like your main carbohydrate source. Um, so that's my real pushback with mm -hmm. it is that it's it, like – it's a great tool for those looking for something, but from a performance perspective, again, you have to be pretty dialed into how much like of the carbohydrate piece you're, you're bringing in. I agree with that. It seems like, again, none of us want to recommend a diet. This would probably be the close. This is the almost 
If we could all create our own right now, if we did the running public diet, it would look most similar to this, but again, with a carb, heavy carb emphasis that would bend the rules of most other systems. Yeah. yeah I mean, that could be like, like really fruit heavy, I guess. <laughs> a lot of dates and stuff. Yeah. And, but I eat, like I said, I eat yogurt and granola. Yeah, I eat yogurt every day. day. Which has grains and dairy. And so it's, I don't drink milk really ever. I used to exist on chocolate milk. I don't really, I don't really do milk ever, but I do a lot of cheese and I'm happy. So, you know, there, there are some things that what is the risk and what's the reward? I'm not a huge non, or I'm not a huge responder negatively to cheese, even though it's probably not super beneficial. I'm a happy man with it. Yeah. There's, um, there's two more things I definitely want to touch on before we, you know, end this thing. And one is what are your guys' takes on whole grains versus um, non-whole grains or simple carbohydrates for the athlete? Do you guys have opinions on what is better? White rice versus brown rice, sweet potato versus white potato, whole grain bread versus white bread, white pasta versus wheat pasta, the list goes on and on. So honestly, when it comes to eating more food, I've found that you know there's a capacity for people's fiber intake. And a lot of times when you're skewing toward brown rice or whole grains, like you can kind of bump up to that pretty quick and it can kind of get you into that some GI distress. Uh, for the most part, like, yeah, like what is it? 20 to 60 grams of fiber is like appropriate across the board. Um, and then after that, you're just putting in a whole bunch of non-digestible food into your system to kind of process through. Uh, I think if it is an option between what is more healthful and and not like leaning toward the whole grain or the brown rice version, but if it is in terms of making sure you're getting enough nutrients in, I don't find it to be that, that I don't, I don't put too much emphasis on it. Hmm. That mirrors me. I think I would tell a normal person to get a good mix of, of whole grains in there. And I think that when you're trying to raise the quantity of food that you're taking in for athletic purposes, that you're going to hit your nutritional aspect from outside sources and that you're gonna to have to stay pretty simple on digestible foods for the quantity aspect. I have a pretty strong opinion on this and that is simple is better. Nice. And I'm gonna tell you why. So. So as athletes, we're always recovering from an effort and we're preparing for our next effort, correct? And the fastest way to recover and the best way to prepare, in my opinion, is to put more of a simple carb in your body because it is going to be absorbed quicker, easier on the GI system um, and help you recover and prepare more quickly, especially if you're a high-trained athlete who's doing two-a-days or who has big efforts every single day. I actually think whole grains are the wrong choice and I think you fill those micronutrient gaps with vegetables and fruits. Okay. So, so I, I live on white rice. If I'm going to have grains, I have more white potatoes than sweet, although sweets are pretty digestible. Um, I just think there's, I, I trained a uh, Minnesota wilds, a hockey team here in Minnesota, and they have a nutritionist for their team. And, and I also trained one of the players wives. And so the nutritionist came and gave a spiel to the team and he had his very strong scientific backing and his philosophy and and all of the athletes, for example, on this high-level hockey team are instructed to like fill their plates with white rice after a meal or after a workout to get ready for the next game because they're playing game after game. Eat white potatoes, eat all that stuff, and then fill your other, the rest of your plate with colors to get your micronutrients. And so, so that was a pretty strong stance he took, and then I dove into it, and, and honestly, it just works a lot better for me. So I, I would argue the simple route can help recover and then refuel, especially if you're a frequent exerciser training high, high, high for – 
Um, look at like, look at, I hate to say it, but look at like people like Aaron Newell's Instagram and shoving <laughs> ice cream in his face and shitty food constantly, but the guy's on his feet constantly. And so he's recovering and preparing for his next. Am I, am I saying eat a lot of simple sugars? No, but I think simple is better. And this is the difference between an athlete and the, the advice that is pushed out for the general public. Mo most people aren't getting enough fiber in their diet and they're eating garbage all the time, drinking sodas, getting calories from white breads. And like, yes, it will be beneficial to these people because they'll be more satiated and it will just be a more healthful way. But yeah, for, for an athlete, this is a, a, a really good, clear distinction, Kirk. I'm glad you brought this up because the general advice for people is much different than the practical application for an athlete. And this is why our advice is always going to be no different than it is on training, where we say, hey, this is a great jumping off point. Now you need to go read up on it and you need to practice with yourself because this will fly in the face of some of those pieces. But we found this all through our self-experimentation, mm -hmm. where I have found that whole grain rice, I don't feel super great in my gut after. I'm very responsive to fiber. Ask yeah, Lisa. <laughs> very strongly to fiber white rice, I could eat a bucket of it and knock off a great workout later or the next morning. I've also found that I can handle sweet potatoes in math. And so that doesn't, that doesn't cause bad reactions for me. So we eat a lot of sweet potatoes in our family, but I, I almost never cook whole grain rice. Let me, let me simplify this to help people understand. If you're going to hit a big strength training session, right? What do they recommend you take if you're going to replace to help recover whey protein, right? Why whey protein? Because it is the most digestible. It's like the white sugar version of protein, right? It's super absorbable, super digestible, bioavailable, and we can use it to recover instantly, right? So now let's say you go out for a really hard run. What is going to be the most bioavailable recovery tool you have? Brown rice or white rice? White rice, because it's going to be easily digestible and absorbable into your body to help you recover the quickest after your workout. And that's like literally the principle. We do that all the time with strength training, people take their whey protein afterwards to recover. That's my feeling with simple carbohydrates after a workout. That is why we should take it because it's gonna help replenish our stores the quickest and help you come back around for your next bout. And that's and like the same thing as like energy gels, you know, goos or Morton, like that's like as simple as possible. Sometimes it's like straight up glucose, like just directly into your system mm -hmm. because that's the way it's gonna get through quickest. So yeah, definitely a good distinction on those. Yeah. Um, the last thing that I thought we should just talk about are like, if you're going to just like throw a bunch of foods at people to like stock their pantry with, I just think it's a good conversation to have. Like, like what are the things that you guys all stock your, your pantry with that you think everybody should? Um, hmm. Because like, yeah, I try to, I try to keep it on that whole food spectrum. So you, when you're saying pantry, just like emergency type foods. No, like what are, what are your, like, if you're going to look at your whole week of eating, what are the foods that you're definitely oh, including in your diet on a yeah, weekly basis? It's a whole lot of white rice, an incredible amount of white rice. <laughs> uh, I make it almost every day and then just like have a huge uh, vat of it in the, in the fridge. Uh, I try to keep all sorts of veggies on, on hand. Um, I do make a lot of chicken as well. Um, for my fat sources, I really like avocado. I really like tahini. Like that's something that I'll, I'll, I'll dress my rice and chicken with. I think that's a really good way to kind of get those fats in peanut butter, bananas. That's pretty typical on, on my end. And I know all those things work really well for me, but yeah, it's a lot of rice and chicken. What oh, about oatmeal for sure. I'd like to do overnight oats. I'll, uh, 
just fill up a little mason jar, put some uh, overnight oats on there. I like protein powder as well. I do use a whey protein pretty much every day. Uh, like I said, it's just the easiest way to kind of get some extra protein in uh, to get it absorbed pretty quickly. So yeah, usually just overnight oats, uh, peanut butter, protein powder. That's my breakfast. We're pretty consistent and boring. Um, both Lisa doesn't eat breakfast very often. She gets up, has her coffee. She generally runs around nine or 10 o'clock and then she eats for the first time after her run. That's just the way she's, she works best. So, um, but the, all the kids and I, we either have oatmeal for breakfast or we have yogurt and granola and fruit in there. Um, almost like a hundred percent of the time, that's what our breakfast is. And our lunch is generally for Lisa and I, it's some sort of egg with vegetables in it. We do our, in our, in our vegetable and like storage cabinet, we have, um, a lot of peppers. A, um, we generally have zucchini. We have a lot of onions, a ton of sweet potatoes and avocados. We buy sweet potatoes and avocados like they're going out of style. And um, and I alternate between something like that skillet style with eggs. And then I do a lot of peanut butter and jelly sandwiches or bagels or wraps or whatever. And then dinner is almost always some sort of rice or noodle or we do a lot of we just basically eat Mexican and Chinese dinners. You know, it's rice or it is uh, it is fajita style or taco style, burrito style. Like it, it's just that kind of thing where we have veggies and rice or something else mixed together. I think- um, Homemade pizza once a week, order pizza once gotta. a week. That's two pizza meals. I, I think one place that people really miss the mark is they don't mm. get enough fat in their diet. I think I think that that is like a missing piece. I don't know, people still seem to shy away if they're not on like the keto train. So hearing like avocados, super important. I, um, amongst the foods you guys listed, white rice, sweet and white potatoes, winter squash, they're all on my counter at all times. And then animal products. We don't do far. enough squash and we both like squash. Lisa so would eat good. squash every day if I bought it. I like, I like butternut. I like spaghetti squash. She she loves butternut. You know, yeah, it is good. We eat a lot of venison. I always, because it's a lean meat, I add scoops of coconut oil to that when I cook. I think coconut oil should be added to most everything just to, all my white rice is either olive oiled up or just to make sure you get enough fat. I think we all know we feel better when Definitely. we have more fat in our diet. I, I certainly fine. do. I feel sated. Meal doesn't feel done until like there's been a good amount of fat in it. And then the nut butters for sure. I'm a fan of the sprouted bread. I do err on the paleo side, but the, the Ezekiel bread, the sprouted grains, Just it's tastes super really nice. Bad. So I do a, a lot of that. Tastes terrible. <laughs> it's it's got to be you toasted. Gotta toast yeah, it toasted and, you got to toast it. You got to toast it. But I, I think that, I think you guys outlined something really nice, which is like, they're not exciting. Like it's very simple. That's how you should be eating. Well, if you go to a restaurant, sorry, Rich, if you go to a restaurant, most people have their go-tos right? It has a wide variety on the plate, but you know the things you like eating and you could eat there several times per week. We just kind of took the dishes we like eating at restaurants and we make it ourselves several times per week. Yeah. And like when you kind of go through the exercise of what a person eats like week, like every day, like tell me what you eat every day all week. And people are, might be like, I don't know what I feel like eating this and that. They're going to eat the same stuff over and over. You really just are. Um, but yeah, I, I don't love this type of question when it comes to like, hey, what should I eat? Uh, just because of like, it's like, yeah, you know what you like, right? And like, cause that's a question I get a lot. It's like, what do you eat before you run? It's like, I don't, I'm fueled all the time. I don't know, like baby food I have sometimes. I don't know. Like, so that's like the thing, like whatever yeah. is going to work is, is what you need to figure out on your own. Well, what else have we missed? We've missed a lot and that's good because if the people want you back, I want to talk about 
the concept of carb loading totally. and preparation. I want to talk about how to recover from workouts with eating windows afterward, fueling windows. I want to talk about recovering from races. I want to talk about race day nutrition, both during and pre. I want to talk about truly what hydrating means. I want to talk about a lot of these things. Like if we're opening this door, then all the things I don't like talking about, I want to talk about them all. Let's get them yeah, all. Let's out. do it. I like to skew, have it all skewed in the lens of performance, right? That's like, that's what this podcast mm -hmm. is about. That's what we were doing as coaches. So it's like, this is a huge piece of it and there's a lot of ways it can go. So yeah, totally. Um, I know we're working on wrapping this up, but I do have one more thing that I thought of. Uh, you just released the podcast episode and I think it was on like, you know, alcohol consumption and your thoughts on performance. Mm -hmm. I think THC was in there and some other things, stimulants, we'll call them. Uh, do you have a quick, like, what is your position on, let's say, alcohol and endurance athletics? It's just, I mean, this has been like, my relationship with this has been rocky for sure for a long time, right? Like trying to figure out like where the proper balance is and just overdoing it. Um, I mean, if you're going to be honest, for a long time, I searched for a way to try to get it both in and for it to work. And it just doesn't like it's just not conducive to performance and doing well. I mean, I know it's great to have a celebratory beverage, um, but it's just so easy to overdo it. And so easy to um, then just kind of spiral out and just crush your sleep and just not, it's not productive in any way. And on top of that, for the body composition piece of things, like we talked about alcohol and how many calories it has, it just opens up the door to really kind of screw up uh, a lot of your performance when it comes to your recovery and when it comes to your body composition. So like as much as I would like for it to work, I do not think it does. What do you guys think? I think um, I'm, I'm like a nightcapper with my whiskey. Like I've been open about that. Um, but how often do I overdo it? So, right. so, so seldomly. I mean, it's been so long. I, I think, I don't think alcohol is the problem. I mean, it is, but it's not. It's what it does to your sleep. It's what it does to the munchies that you get along with it. It's what it does to all the other facets you sleep in or you miss a workout. It's like all the auxiliary factors are the byproduct of if you're drinking. That is the problem. Um, and for that most, nobody like gets good sleep. If you drink too much, you just don't, nobody typically eats well. If you drink too much, nobody gets up earlier in time to do their workout. Those are the things that I think really matter. Do I think like the seven grams of per calorie of alcohol, the problem and what it does to maybe, maybe a minute amount, but I think it's the rest. And it depends really on what you're drinking. You like if you're having those like new England style IPAs, which are delicious, so like the best type of beer to drink. I mean, that comes with a ton of residual sugar, like though it, they're foggy because they dumped lactose sugar in that so also lactose so it could be an intolerant in there as well but they could be like 400 500 calories a pop for those things but they're delicious they're really really mm. good i think everyone by this point knows my stance on all things like this i I, I live my life in moderation and i think that the best thing you could ever do is not bring anything into your body that's not good for it and the best thing you could ever do for your mind is to do all the things you enjoy doing in a sustainable way. So there is no study that's ever shown that you can get quality sleep after ingesting a decent amount of alcohol. You do not hit the, the quality levels of sleep. And sleep is what we always say, if you are not okay with performance enhancing drugs, which you shouldn't be as a runner, then the next best thing you can do is sleep more and better. So from that standpoint, you should never drink alcohol as an athlete. You just shouldn't. However, Lisa and I have wine two to three times a week at night. And that's just the decision I've made that if you don't overdo it, you can be fine. Your body reacts to alcohol like it does a poison. It has to counteract it. It, it elicits negative responses in you. And so you have to, to limit that the best you can. If you're able to never have it in your life because you're so focused on training, good on you. 
And if your life re revolves around a little bit of social imbibing, then have it and just know that you're impacting your sleep a little bit and you should never overdo it if yeah, possible. Yeah, and like, I know I, I'm not, I don't have the moderation uh, skill, I guess. So I, I have to take that. I have to take the approach of like if I don't have if I don't have one drink, I can't have ten drinks. So I I probably shouldn't have one drink. That's the uh, that's so knowing yourself in those route as well. Yeah, because some wine here that I, I ran my five k PR after I had like two glasses of wine because I just got up and I was like, all right, let's go run fast today. Like so you can kind of do it, but it's, it's where you are. <laughs> those anecdotal stories of well. Ryan Woods has won a national title and he drinks wine six right. times a week. Like, are they doing it because of it or despite it? That's always the question you have to ask. Yep. And then you have to, t I, I talked to Woods last year and so wine came up. He was like, yeah, man, I've really, really cut down because I'm 40, you know, and I've, I felt, I'd like to think that I could do it, but I felt better as soon as I did last. Mm -hmm. So everyone kind of knows it, but there's that the prefontaine myth that's permeated the running world, which is that runners drink beer. And in reality, beer is one of the worst things you can drink as an endurance athlete or as a performance athlete. I like beer, but if you were to do it smart, you would do it like Kirk. I think you would take, if you had to have a drink at night, it would be whatever you can get in with the smallest quantity possible with nothing right. else present. And so it would be pure alcohol. Of some sort. <laughs> I yeah. got it figured out. Yeah. I got it figured out. <laughs> you know, but but there's something to say to that. Like when Bracken and I get together for our training weekends, here's the difference. We'll go and grab a burger and a beer or two at night, right? After mm -hmm. a training run. But that alarm's still going off at five in the morning and our asses are still on that ski hill at six. And we're still doing exactly as we had planned without any excuse regardless. Can you sustain that? No. no. But can you have, can you get away with it? If you're going to strategically place it in your plan, of course you can, but it's that moderation piece you're talking about. And we don't let it affect our the, the one thing that I, when eliminating drinking uh, that I really like about that is that I don't have this excuse in the back of my head as to why I'm not performing my best. Like I can take out all those mm -hmm. other factors that will give me any type of excuse. Like that's better. But it was like, oh, you know, I was drinking, I had too many drinks last weekend and my workout sucked. This Like that's why this workout's not going well. If I don't have that to lean on, that's the same with nutrition as well. It's like, if you know you're all fueled up, like you don't have that excuse. Like, oh, maybe I'm not eating enough. Maybe I'm eating like eating poorly. But if you don't, if you know you're doing all those things, then you're, you know, the effort that you're putting out is what you're going to get back. So that's one reason, like the, the mental side of alcohol and like what it does, I think is even as much damaging as like the physical part. I'm a bit of a curmudgeon. I'm grumpy about things. And one thing that I, it just sets me off is the rationale for why people do things. Like if you drink an IPA because you love it and that makes you happy at night, that's cool. It, if you drink beer because you think it's cool that ultra runners grow their hair out and drink beer, then I think you're an idiot. And I don't like the fact that you're doing that. Like if you grow your mustache because you like mustaches, fantastic. If you grow it because it's cool to wear a trucker hat and have a mustache, like stop doing things because you think that they're impressive and cool. You're 35 years old. So that's kind of my stance on all this stuff. Like if you want to do paleo because you think that's great for you, that is, I support that. If you do it because you want to be a CrossFit bro and you know that you'll be, you'll get more respect points online and at your gym because of that, like that's, that's idiocy. Don't do that. So that, that's are how- you fight, Are you fighting the trend by being bald and drinking wine? Is well, that like your stance against the community? No, I, I have beer too as well. I just do it less because when Lisa and I have wine, it's because we're watching The Office at night, you know, and we have a glass of wine as we hang out and talk when the kids are asleep. 
And that means we are right next to each other on the couch and she has an aversion to beer. <laughs> so that's why I don't have beer. That's why I have wine instead. So that, that, that's as far as my rationale goes. But anyways, I, 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 I am a beer drinker. I support people that want to have alcohol in moderation, but I can't stand the idea that it's cool and impressive to be a runner who drinks. I will say you really, you really bragged about that running public branded beer, Bracken. You thought that was pretty cool. <laughs> it is cool, but I wasn't cool because they made a beer with us on there. It was cool that they made a the, beer uh, for us. Yeah. And it was a damn good beer, wasn't it? It was. But again, my, my point is do it for the right reasons. Just like we don't run an interval workout without purpose. Don't drink a beer for the wrong reason. Don't do it because you think it raises your status. Like I bought Gooder glasses and drank an IPA. Now I'm a true runner. Gooder glasses and Supperfest. Right. And there are plenty of, of people out in Utah who have never sipped alcohol in their life who are legit runners. So don't think it makes you any more of a man or a woman because you can stomach a beer. You know what's funny about this? I feel exactly how you do about it. And I push back when like people hop on trends like this. So I'm actually an ambassador for athletic athletic brew, athletic brewing. Cause I love the product. I think it's fun to yeah. participate. I think it's really cool, but I never talk about being an ambassador. Cause I see all the other ambassadors out there who are just doing it because like they think it's cool. And I'm like, yeah. no, this is actually a very helpful, useful tool that you're just doing that. You're just <laughs> drinking because everybody else is drinking it. <laughs> like stop it. Yep. But I'm also just being an asshole, not sharing about it for the wrong reasons, just to push back. So I'm, I'm on the app. I'm like way on the opposite. I got nothing else. What about you, Bracken? Be you, kids. That's what's really cool. Is that your send-off message, Bracken? Yeah. 100%. <laughs> All right, guys. Thanks for listening. <laughs>